0: Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you could find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and uh, digital production. Uh, our second hour is usually something we wanna spend a little bit more time on. And today we're gonna have Michael Curtis on. He's gonna lead a discussion about acoustic measurement using source independent FFT tools. Do you know what that means? Oh, you will after the second hour today. So uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what what do we
1: got? Our first one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, and Roscoe asks, Autonate has announced transferable Dante licensing for $30 more, that's a total of $80, for their virtual sound card. Would you consider buying just one or two of these licenses, or how many? And he's got a link there to the product. Uh, Go ahead, Marty.
2: Well, I guess it depends on how many computers you want to run during an event, or how many events you're going to be running, or how many different laptops you might circulate through your system. Um, I I carry, well, I have like three different laptops that that I could take to a job depending on whether it's video or audio or whatever. And so I might get uh, one or two, you know, to have. I might use two computers and I want want to use Dante between them or uh, have one between myself and another member of the crew somewhere else.
0: If I had a large fleet, I might do this. I think in the current state of the way that we use them, I'd rather just have one for every computer. <laughs> so generally, every computer that's doing this type of work it just has has DBS on it. Um, we, don't, we don't really discriminate between computers and try to—we just kind of put it on because we just know that eventually we'll need it. And I think that in a production environment—now, if I had a large number of them, and some of them are in and some of them are out, it, I think it might make sense— uh, but for the most part, I'd rather just install them and uh, and just have them have them doing what they need to do.
2: Sometimes um, you have to. Uh, sometimes I have to use the production company's computers. Uh, that can make and they more sense. They may not have DBS on them, DBS on them, or I might have to rent one, or you know, I refresh my computers, buy new ones every once in a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a That's a good point. Absolutely uh next question
2: next one comes to us from um
1: john pretto in las vegas several of us downloaded and experimented with the beta version of photoshop with generative fill he'd like to share results
3: alex we've requested chris has requested if we could wait until he gets back we developed a a, a down yeah. a short demo yeah, that's yeah, that like chris share gets back
0: so we'll we'll, um, we'll 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 cancel this and we'll push it back to voting and then we'll bring it back up when chris is here all right next
1: next one comes to us from uh douglas carmichael in the modern era when do you use dedicated leased circuits from site to site versus using the public internet good morning
2: well, wow. well, I think you you might be have a better answer than this, Alex. But um, uh, when you're using the public internet, you know you have security issues, you have more latency issues. you'll be running through different nodes on the internet. When you have a dedicated lease circuit, you have a predictable path between your two endpoints. And so you can expect lower latency. you will have guaranteed bandwidth um, and uh, and more security. This is typically used, uh, like between off two different offices of the same company, where they need to connect um, uh, their their computers and and servers between two different locations on a permanent basis. But can be used in production work, you know, on a large scale event.
4: Good, Courtney. Yeah, Marty hit the high points there. Security and latency are the primary reasons. Uh, you'll typically see these between uh, broadcast networks and their affiliates, uh, where security—they don't want anybody intercepting the stream and hijacking it. They don't want—they uh, want low latency. And sometimes uh, they used to before uh, you know, digital time-based correction became ubiquitous. Uh, uh, they used to be able to genlock different television stations together so that they could share a video without latency and not, without having to reclock the video. Uh, and a lot of corporations will lease uh their private fiber from a fi- uh, separate uh backhaul supplier uh, for security to keep uh, all of their communications to their different uh companies uh in line so any anytime you have a fixed infrastructure like your you know buildings and and different headquarters in different locations you know then leased lines help with security and help with latency but other than that, you could use a VPN on the internet, but it's a little bit less secure and not as fast. A lot less fast.
0: Yeah, I I lease a lot of lines, <laughs> as Marty as Marty alluded to, and uh, we primarily use uh, a, a service called the Switch uh, to connect a lot of those lines. Uh, the main reason that we use them is a latency and b stability. Um, you know, a non-public internet connection uh is much lower latency because you don't have to have as much redundancy in the in the process Uh, it generally has a lot less loss it's a lot more secure it's a lot you know more stable um so we we very rarely see any kind of like once it's up it's up you know and those can be again an organ you know a service like the switch is pretty popular and it's almost every major um, facility, you know, arena or stadium uh, has the switch already built into it. Networks all have the switch built into it. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a web of networks that, we, that a lot of us use for those types of things. Um, MPLS is another solution for that, and it, it does give you many of the same uh, advantages, but then you have to manage it yourself. So those are the two big ones that, that we've used in the past. Um, you know, if, when left in your, to my own devices, I don't want to touch the internet <laughs> like, you know, so when I'm doing a production. Uh, I just find it to be, a, you know, <laughs> just a, a mess. So, um, but we obviously use it, and then we add latency to it to make sure that it actually works. Uh, next question.
1: Next one is coming to us from Andre Dole in Berlin. I'm searching for a quick-release rack screw solution. The aim would be to get quick access to the interior of our streaming rack, ideally from the back where the patch panel is located, without using a screwdriver. Uh, Go ahead, uh, Marty.
2: So you want to be able to pull a patch bay out of a rack while it's connected to otherwise? That's a tough one. There's a lot of wires there that you might be pulling out of out of your rack. Um, uh, I was struggling with this one, and and this is one that's come up a lot in in my installations. Uh, There there is one possible product that I found. Um, This is from Radial Engineering, and they make these rack screws that have uh, thumb that are large enough to be screwed in by hand. Uh, They call them thumb set screws. Uh, The other. Thoughts I had were to use a, rack, uh, a shelf, but then you still need to secure the item to the rack. I don't know. Anybody else have ideas? Go, Jeffrey.
5: Yeah, if you take a shelf and then you uh, secure all the cables, if you really need to pull the whole thing out with all the, the cables intact, then you uh, create a shelf and then you secure everything down so you can pull it out. There used to be these really awesome rack screws that I used in, in uh, my IT days. Which actually had a push button on them, so the what would happen is the screws would have like the little uh, tines that would pull it, pull out that uh, would once you put it in, so it'd be secure, and then you push on the button and you know, it'd pop out. I don't, I can't find them, but I did find a couple. Uh, first one comes from uh, this is on Musician's Friend. This is a thumb screw that you screw in the regular bolt, and then, of course, there's a thumb screw there, which you can then take a screwdriver if it's too tight and go from there. And then this other one called Rack Studs, which looks pretty interesting. I think it's the same concept, but it's also the I think the fasteners hold the, that orange piece in the rack so the thumb screws don't turn out the whole th- uh, threaded screw. So those are a couple, but I'll still look for the push-button one because I know it's out there go ahead courtney
4: yeah this is a bad idea as far as uh replacing the screws with something quick release because almost all rack mounted equipment is cantilevered so it's those screws are supporting the whole weight which is usually behind the screws obviously so Anything that would be easy, to, like a push button to release, is probably going to break. A better solution maybe would be to get something that's on a sliding rack like this, uh, Durham Slide Rack Slots, where it's designed on drawer slides to slide out and slide back, and then you can just quickly fasten it to keep it from sliding out when you transport it uh, with a you know a twist uh, twist lock on the side. Uh, but it it supports uh, all the weight and is, has drawer slides to slide out easily. But of course, cable management is the big key here. Is you have to provide enough slack for those cables to slide out and access the back. It's better to have the rack so you can spin it around and access it from the back. That's my favorite way to do.
0: Yeah, there's Jason Base has one that I. I I have to admit, I figured I, I thought that Jason would be on today, so I, I didn't look too deeply. I was like, "Oh, Jason will have that answer. He's got a, he's got some that just snap in," and um and I can't. He sent them to me actually, and I just was looking for them, but I can't find them. So so anyway, I haven't needed to put a rack together yet um in my house, and so so I don't I don't I don't have them right and off the top of my head. But we'll we'll, we'll do a little more research on that. Uh, next question.
1: The next one comes from comes to us from Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin. I've been volunteered to do still photography at a 60 attendee conference. Document speakers, interactions, panel sessions, networking and so forth. What e-mount lens would you choose for maximum flexibility?
0: I mean, the go-to for a lot of these is going to be—I don't know exactly what the E-mount version of this is, but it's a twenty—you know—a twenty-four to seventy is what you're looking for, and you want to have something that's fairly fast. Uh, there is also a um, a Sony lens that I think is a twenty-eight to one hundred five uh, or one hundred four or something like that. That that is um, also one that is—it's motorized as well, so you can do a couple other things with it. But um, I think that those are those are pretty—that's a pretty solid range that most of us, if we're just only going to have one lens. We're going to carry that. A lot of times, what we want to have is three lenses. We want to have one that goes out to a 14 or or something like that, you know, like a a 16 to 35, 14 to something or other, and then uh, the 24 to 70, and then usually like a 7200. If you have those three lenses, you have an enormous amount of range to cover. Go ahead, Bill.
1: I'm very close to where Alex is. I, I only want one lens with me. My go-to typically is a 24-105. to I like a little more reach than the 24-70. 24-70 is often a better lens, and Alex is right. It'll often be faster. My 24-105 is f4, but I've still covered lots of events, and I find that satisfying where it gives me both the ability to go wide and, and do group work, also, it gives me enough zoom to be able to see something at maybe 20 or 30 or 40 feet away and get close enough to it to get a satisfying crop of a couple of people talking or something like that.
0: And remember that you can, you know, with, with all of these things, you can rent lenses. And so if I was going to do a, a panel like this, I would have a, a small bag and I'd put a handful of those that range of lenses in there rather than trying to buy one, I would just rent what I needed. They're very inexpensive off of organizations like borrow lenses. If you have a little bit of time to deal with uh, the delivery and everything else, it's it's really, really cost-effective. Um, next question.
1: Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware. Yellow tech just added a mute controller that might beat them all. And he has a link there. Go ahead, Jeffrey.
5: Yeah. I saw these guys at, uh, NAB. And I'm gonna show you the picture here. So I did a, a short on that over on my channel. So basically what this is called is the Hush Plus. And this is the device right here that comes in two flavors. This is the non-preamp version, but they do have one with a preamp installed in here. Uh, so the microphone goes in here. This is a DIN connector. And then of course you have the uh, the mute and the cough switch right there. It goes through their stands and then, up to well where the microphone will be, they got a camera here. but what's more interesting is up on top here there's a little tally light that tells you it's red if if you're muted, and I believe it's white if you're in cough mode and then the other cool thing about it is it comes with this uh, with this app, so you can go over MIDI, you could go over uh, USB uh, you could have somebody set up so if you are uh, on a zoom call, uh, somebody could just be there. Muting your mic and unmuting your mic uh, from the yellow tech box. It's, it's pretty interesting. It was uh, $399 and $900, depending on if you need a preamp or not in it. And like I said, I have a short up on my, my page if you want to watch it. Good, Bill.
1: I like almost everything about this and the almost unfortunately kind of makes it a no-go for me but that's just me. I have famously said I need a tactile switch that I can feel whether the switch whether the mic is on or off. I think they've done a really good job making this uh a perfectly useful product for about 90% of the people who want to do mic muting. Uh, it just fails for me because of that. I'm hoping that maybe at some point they'll come up with an alternate push button, and rather than those membrane switches that you cannot determine if it's on or off with, uh, even with the little light, I still am a very tactile person, and I want that button where I can put my finger on it and know if it's activated or not.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I look down at mine a lot. I, mine doesn't tell me from where where the position is, so I, I, I'm probably less sensitive to that. It it is an interesting thing to be able to tally it on and off, um, you know, with with an external connection. So I th- I find that to be interesting because so you you could theoretically have, uh, I believe, looking at this, you could have a light next to your camera the way that you know I could have it up here, and when I tap on that button, I can see it next to my you know next to my teleprompter or camera that I'm I'm on or off. So um, with, that, with that hardware connection, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty nice. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't give up my 205 because I have other channels on it that are available to me via Dante. So I probably wouldn't change where, where I'm at, but I could definitely see how we would use it in a studio environment. Uh, next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, B.C. Any recommendations for neatly running and securing wires down the legs of a camera tripod? Velcro strips are okay, but hoping to find something that looks better. Go ahead, Marnie.
2: All right. So the answer here is TechFlex. TechFlex makes a series of uh, monofilament braided wire coverings. We use these a lot when we're uh, making wiring harnesses and such. But um, instead of, you know, all wires, you can have the tripod legs, you know, be around it. So there's a couple of different models. This one simply um, overlaps itself. uh, And it's fairly rigid. So it's very easy to get in and out of. And you can cut these, uh, you want to cut these with a hot knife um so that the edges don't fray um, you could burn the edge with a lighter if you don't have a hot knife but um, you want to make sure that it's a nice clean cut on the end so this simply folds over it it's over itself uh, you buy them at, in different diameters um, <clears throat> the other version that they have it has velcro uh, on it so it's a bit more secure just for tripods uh, i don't see that as being necessary so i think this one here and uh, this is called the F six woven wrap. Uh, and you can see that they come in a bunch of different sizes. Another
0: thing to look at is the gravity stands cable clip. Um it's a little one that clips on. I don't know if it'll work for all tripods, so you might want to take a look at um, but it's built really for speaker stands. And what you do is it clips on and it has a little chute that goes through it. Now it's not gonna keep it tight at some point. You know, one of the advantages you want to look at is that you wanna you wanna have those cables. Running down the the stand, but typically you want to assure that they are really tied at some point before they get to the camera. So you want to create a little bit of an extra loop, and then you want to make sure that you tighten it at, at that point to make sure that if someone pulls on that cable, it's not pulling on the connector that's going into the camera. So you, you know, oftentimes the camera has enough have enough movement as well to move back and forth. So think about that as you as you do it. But so the, this gravity stands wouldn't necessarily this uh, cable clip wouldn't necessarily um, give you that. But it would. It does look nice. You know, I've, I've used them on on speaker speaker stands. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill.
1: Well, and the other uh, normal thing, this is an old uh, monopod of mine that I'm still using to this day, and Manfrotto and a lot of other companies gave them to you with these little clips. These little clips are a plastic holder that has a little tunnel through it so that you can run any kind of wires. The reason that I still like using these to today is that you can get an extra pack of them and have as many as you need up and down. But in the case where you wire things and then you realize, oh, my gosh, I didn't run another cable, this in the field can be pulled off and you can string another wire to add to your rig through it. And then to meet Alex's requirement, which is I agree with 100%, I put a piece of gaffer's tape at the bottom of whatever structure I'm doing and another one at the top with that strain relief loop. But I really like these little things. Also, some of them are really nice because they have a little tiny plastic molded hex driver in there. And for the tripod that they work with, you can actually increase or lower the tension on the clips on your tripod by using this plastic thing that's always around and available. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
4: Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that they had made those. You'd have to get them for the right diameter for your tripod. And if you have a 3D printer, you can do like I did and print these little cable clips. This one uh, has space for the cable in there and it's designed for square. The square support stands on my mic stand, so they just snap on, but you can make them, design them, with your three D printer to fit the diameter of your tripod legs, and with uh, PLA, you can make them just just slightly uh, uh, an opening that will snap over and hold it securely, and have room for however many cables you
0: you need to route. Uh, go, uh, Jeffrey, real quick.
5: And if you want, you just uh, create a skirt. So just like if if you were at a uh, at a uh, hotel conference room, the, you know they put usually put a cloth right over the tripod.
1: So, you don't see the cables at all. Next question. Next question comes from some Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. The new Lewitt Pure Tube, yep, all caps, he says, is out. Any thoughts? I love the hard case it comes with. If you get the cage and the pop filter bundle, the Lewitt vid mentions holistic design. Meh. Sweetwater has a link. it has a link to Sweetwater there for the unit. Go ahead, uh, Courtney.
4: I looked a little bit at the uh, at the video from Sweetwater. Uh, it looks like an interesting, the specs on it are amazing. It's a tube-based condenser microphone, real condenser microphone. Uh, a lot of people like the tube-based microphones for their, you know, uh, subtle distortion when they go high. This has a huge, huge uh, high SPL uh, level, handling level, and an extremely low noise level. So those are two good things. And if it has that tube sound, my only fear of a, of buying a microphone like this is that uh, replacing the tubes might be difficult in these days, but uh, it looks interesting. Uh, and if it sounds as good as it, they say it does, uh, might be a good choice. I didn't see what the price is though, so.
0: Yeah, it. I'm pretty confident in Lewitt's quality. I guess what I would say is of the mics that I've used, if they're, if they're gonna say they have something that looks like that, I bet you it's pretty good. I'm pretty, pretty interested in giving it a shot. Um, But uh, we'll see how much it is, as Courtney said. Uh, Next question.
1: Josh looks like Glendale in Birmingham, UK, says, with the release of Ableton Push 3 yesterday, what are people's thoughts on Ableton getting into the standalone hardware game?
0: I think almost always when a software company puts a piece of hardware out that's designed to work with their software, it's going to be one of the best. (laughs) So I think that Ableton is probably going to have a, I think that this is potentially a really, really powerful tool. To look at it this isn't my uh so that's a general comment um this isn't isn't my uh area of expertise so um so i I don't know for sure, but it looks impressive and it, and again, what happens is is that when a software company decides to put something out, especially one that has had a lot of experience um I think that it you end up with folks that um you know they they've really thought out how to make that piece of hardware interact with their software at its at its best so um so I think it'll be. Uh, really interesting to see. Well, we've got a couple of Ableton Live uh, experts in the
1: group. We'll see if we can't get them to come in and give their opinion. Uh, next question: Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand, is back with. I mentioned GPU audio a while back, and it got some attention at NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants show. Not much, given Apple's all-conquering M series chips. Do you think this project and/or idea is moot? And he's
0: got good like right there, good Jeffrey.
1: I don 't
5: think that it 's moot at all because there are a lot of people that well first of all there 's a lot of people that still don 't use apple for their um, for their music production uh, being able to transfer with low latency, being able to transfer multiple uh, tracks and we 're talking way past thirty two channels uh, something like this is perfect, uh, something like Nvidia. Uh, where they're they're building they're building boxes that are more GPU based than CPU based uh, are are definitely going to be great because then you can put these little PCB type boards into a mixing console and uh, and have a very powerful system and I think that uh, it's it's in its infancy and we'll we'll see some uh, we'll see some great stuff coming from that and of course the biggest thing is a lot of these plugins now are very graphical. Uh, so you're you have, you're basically pulling up uh, lines and and EQ uh, that are are being shown from a plugin that's going in, which is what takes a lot of process on a computer uh, when you're when you're doing a lot of mixing. So uh, I think that this is going to be you know something in about a couple of years will really start to hit the forefront.
4: Go ahead, Courtney. You know, when uh, digital audio first came about, they used uh, special DSP boards, which had digital signal processing processors on a single card that plugged into your computer uh, to speed up and to handle all the uh, digital signal processing uh, uh, to do all the transforms and so on. And these days, you're, you know your typical GPU, an NVIDIA GPU has thousands of parallel processing uh, cores in it, which can be purposed to handle all those DSP functions. And so it's just loading the DSP code into those individual cores. And by doing that, you get, as Jeffrey said, all this parallel low latency processing so that you can process, you know, 100 channels simultaneously without dealing with the CPU stack and interrupts and everything else. So um, I think that it'll be around for a while. And I don't think uh, Apple's you know, single core construction is going to be uh, useful for this. I think the multi Multi-core uh, NVIDIA processors will probably be pressed to, to
0: use for the next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Brody Hefner in New York City. ExtremeTech.com is reporting widespread failure of SanDisk, SanDisk Extreme Pro SSDs with file system loss in drives filled to near capacity. Western Digital promises a fix, but it, but does this just confirm that one should avoid filling up any drive? Go to Bill. My answer to that is yes, it confirms that you should avoid filling up any drive. As you get near the capacity of a drive, you you risk getting into the point where content you put on it can't get written to the directory because there's no more room for that. And that can lead to catastrophic failure in these systems. So be very well. I don't know anybody who works professionally that is ever anywhere near comfortable at the top end of a storage capacity of any kind of uh, digital storage device, you always want some margin left because uh, if it has to go in internally, if you move things inside, sometimes it has to build a second copy of the file in order to move it from one uh, register to another. It's just really bad practice to fill them up. Go, ahead, Jeffrey.
5: Yeah, I agree. Don't don't fill them up. But uh, SanDisk also came out with a firmware update yesterday. So, if you do have the extreme, and it, it, of course it really depends on which model of extreme you have uh because I have one from like four years ago and and I've filled that thing up back and forth. it's no problem, but uh get the firmware update on whatever model you have
0: yeah we have a couple of those. We use them for we to be honest they were available when we needed them in a short time frame, and so we bought them uh Those are the only sand discs we own and we've had so many failures on and off for, with sand disc products over the last ten years that uh we bought them in a pressure we have a couple of them laying around we don't use them heavily um and uh we you know worry about them <laughs> like so so uh that we've had all kinds of problems with the way that sand disc structures its uh, memory. So uh, do uh, be careful. Uh, I would recommend still looking at Samsung products. Next question.
1: Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What are some viable audio injection solutions to a client's phone for streaming to Instagram? And he notes Instagram Live producer blessings are rare on these solutions. iOS, Android, Lightning, and USB-C are in play. Stereo is preferred. Software solutions don't seem very directed at phone mic inputs
0: yeah I think that this is where you may want to look at I believe is it is it Yolo that makes the um, that makes the Android device there's an Android device that's made that's de- designed for Instagram specifically and I think that you want to look at that um, there because what it does is it says I'm a phone and then it, then it has regular uh, inputs that that you can use uh, for that so if I was going to specialize in an Instagram, uh, output uh, I think that, that would be the that that'd be what I'd look at first is something that's going to be an Android device that uh, emulates uh, that process you know the the problem you're fighting is that Instagram has this misguided uh, opinion that uh, that they're trying to keep everybody on an even playing field they're trying to actually make it harder for you to um, to do what you're trying to do uh, you know they want everybody to just do it with their phone because companies like my company and other people's companies um, push the envelope a little harder and it and uh, and makes it hard people feel like oh if I can't do it that well I'm not gonna do it at all and so they've they've built an opinion that that um, bad video and bad audio is um, what they want everybody to be doing and they're bringing kind of the entire quality process down so the the more we can hack it the better Um, you still can use I believe yellow duck to hack that system and uh, get around it um, and and then the of course, the, the craziest one is to, is to go ahead and, and build a rig that you're shooting a screen, but um, we should continue to resist. Next question.
1: Harshid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida, and here on the panel today, says a friend had wanted to ask, hey, you seem to know lots of stuff. Do you have recommendations on what to use to record a podcast when the hosts are in different locations? Thanks.
0: Yeah. And, and Harshid, are you looking for just audio records? Uh, can you hear me? I can't hear you, Harsheed. Go ahead. Harshid. we can't hear you. Oh, go oh,
6: can't hear you. I'm going right. to say let's give them both options uh, for audio and whatnot. Uh, this person just asked the question. Uh, my recommendation would be first is always audio. So get a better microphone, uh, such as a Sennheiser or SSL2. You could plug and play, get to get on the road. Um, but any other technical recommendations from you guys?
0: I mean, the, the the what you may want to be looking for is something that's going to do what we call double ending. So Riverside FM, uh, Squadcast is another one that I that I've been brought on. I, I don't use it as much, but I but I've been brought on to shows that use it. Um, so Squadcast will basically do a local record um, while it's doing a while it's you're able to interact, um, and that's the one that I probably have the most experience with outside of just using Zoom. Uh, the problem with Zoom is that if they have a Wi-Fi connection, and a lot of people do, you're going to hear the audio break up a fair bit um and so um so that's problematic also stream voodoo uh stream voodoo will do local records it will do local records of video and audio um so you can you can use it for for those um what we call double ended recordings and it will do i think stream voodoo will do prores <laughs> like you know like you know um so it's it's pretty it's uh so it's it's a pretty good solution as well so those are some things to to think about there um, we do it's already been announced that zoom's going to support double ending in the future so sometime this year we expect definitely before the next zoomtopia <laughs> we accept, because they're not going to want to come back and talk about it again so definitely before the next zoomtopia we would expect to see uh double ending yeah go ahead jeffrey
5: wouldn't this be a good solution for the dante license transfer because then you can put the uh, dante license on people's computers they can do the show, it could come back to a mixer uh, or a DAW, and then uh, you have, because I'm assuming you want that separate control of all the, uh, of all the speakers. And you're, you're talking and about doing then, Dante uh, over no. the internet? Possibly, yeah.
0: It doesn't work. Okay. okay. I, can, I can tell you so many days and weeks and hours of my time have been dedicated to that one thing, and it uh, doesn't work. Um, the, you, it, it will work at, um, over private fiber between universities in the u k at three hundred miles uh, in a very tight test, and you have to basically Dante, with Dante you need to uh, clock both ends, so you need to clock both ends to get them to to talk to each other and it and it worked for a little moment and <laughs> everyone 's really excited about it, uh, but in general uh, over the public internet, Dante is just too finicky to do that the The best way to connect. If you're going to do that kind of connection, um, Unity Connect or Source Connect are the two things that a lot of people use for that, Uni- Unity Connect being the less expensive version of that process. Um, you can connect between two sites using Matty and using, again, as we talked about earlier, private fiber. So again, you're clocking both ends to, to make that actually work, and it takes a little bit of a setup, but Matty will work uh, again, but not over, not over the public internet. Um, next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Do you know of any good videos that explain impedance matching? Go ahead, Marty.
2: Yeah, I just uh, uh, put in a search term for audio impedance and came up with a bunch of videos. Now, impedance matching could be, uh, you know, there's different levels of audio and different levels of impedance whether you're trying to whether you're concerned about impedance matching for loudspeakers or headphones or for line level devices or for mic level devices or you know it's all impedance matching but they're all a bit different in in their characteristics um but yeah I found uh, too many to mention here too many to list uh, audio impedance as a search term in in YouTube uh will get you quite a few Next question. Next
1: one comes to us from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. The American Council for the Blind is holding a conference on audio description. It will com- be completely virtual. It's June 22nd to 24th. Is anyone interested? And she's got the link. Good morning.
2: Yeah, I might tune into this. You know, I, I do a fair amount of work for hearing impaired people in public spaces, uh, houses of worship and such, um, and audio description uh, for the blind and, and uh, for he- visually impaired people is has become more and more important. Actually, the FCC has mandated it in certain markets in the U.S., and that list of markets is expanding for television broadcast. Um, and incidentally, um, I am trying, starting to put together a panel to do a show here on Office Hours about audio description. So if you, anybody knows people who do audio description, have them give me a call.
0: Go ahead, Arshid.
6: This is an awesome uh, uh, virtual event that I, I attended the one in 2021. And we, we get we really get to learn how companies do things such as Amazon putting in uh, TTS engines with audio description being done by that. So uh, a really valuable uh, conference to go to. I know Dr. Joel Snyder has been uh, running it for quite some time. I'm not sure if that's uh, still the case right now. But uh, he would be a great person because he has started this ADP, which is the Audio Description Project. And uh, it pretty much has a collective of anything you could think of that has audio description. You could go to the website and you'll find all the entries there uh, from game, movies, TV shows, etc. cetera. And uh, for as far as the conference itself uh, – it being virtual, I think that we really should consider possibly even how Mukana might help them. So uh, definitely a good tool there. And uh, the person that I would recommend as far as audio describer that I have personally spoke to would be Roy Samuelson. Um, there definitely a whole list of them. There is actually a Facebook group that is Audio Description Discussion. And uh, we there's just a bunch of engineers and a whole bunch of people there that might be useful to you.
0: Yeah, and and the um, uh, we are doing accessibility for seven weeks starting mid June. Um, our Saturdays will not be education; they'll be accessibility, and so um, so we are will we'll definitely cover audio description at some point during that time. Um, so stay tuned uh, for more information there. Uh, also, just a quick reminder that you can ask questions um, throughout the hour. So uh, first hour is general general discussion. And if you have uh, questions about audio measure acoustic measurements. Um, then uh, also throw those into the second hour. Um, you can tag those in Makana and make sure to vote on the questions so we, so we know which, what, how what order you'd like to put them in. So go ahead and throw those questions in. Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Are curved monitors a gimmick? And if not, how do you feel about a curved 32-inch monitor for center and then two flat 27-inch monitors on each side on an L-shaped desk? And how big should one go with a non-4K monitor for a daily workstation? Go ahead,
4: Courtney. I don't like curved monitors. I think they were a gimmick when they came out first for televisions, and you'll notice they don't have them very much anymore. Uh, Because the problem is reflections. If you don't get uh, a completely matte surface finish on it, any kind of light behind you is going to show up as a reflection on the screen, and there's no way to position yourself or position the screen where it'll be out. Uh, And and the reflections move oddly because of that uh, parabolic or curved surface. When you move your head, the reflection moves more than a normal reflection was in your brain causes causes some discordance in your brain, and uh, it looks like it's kind of a floating image. It's very distracting. The reflections are very distracting, so that's why I don't like them. I'd use three flat screens instead of um, a one large curved screen. The idea is to you know wrap it around your peripheral vision, but uh, as you know, your peripheral vision isn't very sharp. So I'd rather have one and look, at, look in each direction. There you go, Jeffrey.
5: So, I they're not a gimmick. And but it really depends on what you're using them for. I mean, like for instance, uh if you are if you're using them for racing games, they're perfect for that. If you're using them for flight simulators, they're perfect for that. If you're doing videos uh like Twitch uh stuff where you are gaming in those types of uh, situations are perfect for that. Samsung made the uh the one monitor that was at CES last year that you could actually turn 90 degrees and all of a sudden you've got uh you've got the vertical look rather than the uh, horizontal look and sometimes you just need to put something in peripheral, peripheral view that, uh, like for instance, uh, Twitter or, or, or comms or something like that, that it, it's perfect right there. And of course, with that curve, that helps you see it a little bit better. I don't see the reflections that Courtney was talking about when I look at uh, curve monitors, unless there's a, a a big light source behind me, then, uh, then I think it's fine. So, it really depends on the situation that you're using for. Personally, I like f- uh, flat monitors, but I wouldn't be opposed to using a curved monitor. I just have to figure out how to use it.
7: Uh, sorry, we got a little uh, the wrong window here. Um, uh, go ahead, Chris. I think the word you're looking for is portrait view, not peripheral view. But um, yeah, so something happened about 30 years ago where uh, some of us, when we were children, televisions were considered a um, uh, uh, an appliance, kind of like a refrigerator or um, a, a stove or something like that and a decision was made to turn them into a piece of consumer electronics and get them onto a faster cycle of, of replacement. Um, nobody th- would think of changing their TVs as, as often as we do now, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and because of that, they do need to come up with a new gimmick and i agree with courtney i think it's a gimmick uh, i it pains me to say i also believe uh, i also agree with jeffrey that yeah maybe for a game i don't game so i don't i don't get that whole thing at all so whatever um, but keep in mind 3d television all these th- there are gimmicks and if you step back 10 20 years you can see the cycle of gimmick gimmick gimmickry gimmickry gimmick, Gimmickosity. Anyway, you can see that they are trying to make gimmicks out of TVs because they want to sell you. They really want to sell you another TV every three years.
2: Go ahead, Marnie. Wow, Chris. <laughs> I love the way you explain things. Uh, <laughs> um, so I have two 27-inch monitors here that are at slight angles to each other in front of me with a camera in the center. And And I like the way that is. It's It gives me a really wide view. They're extended monitors. Um, and I have a 42-inch curved monitor over here. I can't show it to you, but it, it's nice and wide. But it's not quite as high, as tall as these 27s in front of me. And, um, the problem. So I, I got it because, uh, for doing audio editing, um, you know, I can make the tracks really wide. I can see more real estate of what I'm editing and even for, for video as well. But the, um, issue I have because of the lack of height is that the text scaling is really kind of small and makes it hard to see sometimes. So, um, you know, Curved is really nice because peripheral view um, is a bit better, but you you can take two monitors and and effectively do something like a curve with a a little angle between them and get the same thing.
3: Go ahead,
1: Bill, real quick. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say that I actually like a a different approach to it. I have just recently had to uh, do a ton of script work, and you can see that now, as of four days ago, I actually have a vertical monitor to the right of my... Uh, main monitor. And let me just get this out and get back to regular uh, circumstance. And so the flexibility of being able to have multiple individual monitors rather than a big massive monitor where all I can do is kind of move things around on it has been my solution of choice. Yeah,
0: I just standardized on, generally, I have a lot of 24-inch flat monitors. I, don't, I, I put them in a, they're a big circle around me, but I don't want to have a curved monitor. I just like to have the same size everywhere, um, and
1: it works really well for me. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next, and Douglas says, How would you compare Moto to other 3D products?
0: Modo was really revolutionary when it came out. I think it probably has lost a little bit of its lead in the past, but a lot of people who still use it, it's, it's very fluid. So for modeling, it's, it's a really fluid. The rendering never really took off as much as I think the, mo- the modeling itself. Um, it's got really great tools for just very fluid modeling. But of course, what happens is I think as they go out, it's not competitive across all the different places and things like Cinema 4D, um, as well as Maya and others, uh, you know, Blender, all starting to catch up with that. So I think it's a really good product. Um, I think that it's probably not as competitive as it was when it first came out. Uh, Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from John Preto in Las Vegas. Several of us downloaded and experimented with the beta version of Photoshop with generative fill. Would like to share our results. Go ahead, John.
3: So right during office hours yesterday at eight o'clock in the Firefly Discord, they showed off what we've been talking about for months, which is the integration of generative fill inside of Photoshop in, in their own layers. And so Chris put together, Chris and I put, well, Chris put it together, have a little teeny video we'd like to share with you guys.
7: Not a video, it's it's just, <laughs> I love, but thanks for jumping on the, the bandwagon, John. Yeah. I appreciate that. So uh, what we did, what I did is I created a canvas and and actually I, I created a 16 by nine canvas and I, And the first layer I said, my prompt was, please show me a beach at sunset. And what it did was, it gave me a photo of a beach at sunset. The next prompt that I did is, I said, School of Dolphins Swimming. And what I did is, I generate, I drew a little bounding box here and I turned that on. And Boom I had a it added a school of dolphin swimming, and it gave me some options you know it as it does, it gives you options, and I liked this one the best. Then I said, I thought it'd be cute to put a little seashell in the corner it's probably too big, but i I changed the opacity and the transfer mode to kind of make it blend in a little bit. Then I thought, you know right here in the middle, uh, I said uh, here 's the prompt: single sailboat on the horizon at sunset. all right let's turn that layer on. yeah, that works that'll work. And then I thought, you know what, let's just make the whole thing bigger. So I extended out the canvas to the left at first, and I got that. And that was just one click. And the prompt for that was uh, extension of beach at sunset. And again, it gave me some options. And then it had this little bit of gradu over here. I'm not really sure what, it, what that is. So I just... <laughs> gradu, is that, a, is that a technical term? Yeah. It gradu <laughs> <and> gradu. <laughs> means it's Latin for extraneous... Uh, material in a scene. So um, what I did is I just you know lassoed around that and said you know remove. Um, And then you know I grew up in Southern California so uh, I said offshore oil rig at sunset on Horizon (laughs) and it added that uh, over here. And, And what you do is you draw a little bounding box and you say please make this iteration in that bounding box. And then I thought, okay, let's just make it bigger again, and again a little bit of gradu over there, and I removed that. And so, allegedly, this scene doesn't exist anywhere in the real world, uh, but uh, one layer at a time, and everything is editable. I was able to, uh, sometimes when I would put the layer in, it doesn't make, like, for example, the... um, If I could show you here real quick, if I turn off the extension, you could see it drew the um, oil rig on the sky, on the ocean. So I can't literally just pick it up and move it. I guess I could probably key it out somehow, whatever. But um, by and large, I mean, I can paint out the extra stuff if I wanted to. But Mm -hmm. I was super impressed. And you know, Pretto is a a future thinking. He's been saying this since the beginning of all this stuff. Adobe's going to do it in layers. Adobe's going to do it in uh, Look at that. Adobe did it in layers. Pretty cool.
0: <laughs> Go, ahead, Jeffrey.
5: Yeah, I totally agree. I've I've been playing with it yesterday. Uh and of course a couple different uh, uh of course being in beta a couple different things uh, that that well, we'll, what Chris was talking about. So if I if I was to change I did this uh, whole Put a, put a whale in the middle of the water. As you can see, that whale is way too big for the spot there. And if I try to change that, it's, uh, you, you're going to see it. We'll do that really quick. Oops, And oh, like that. And like that. If I go to change that, you can see that it's actually changing the scene with it. And so I can't do that. But, but the same thing is if I wanted to change, because we get three different options when, when you uh, bring something up. So if I even change the background scene, Whales completely out of, uh, out of out of out uh, of water for that matter. Um, so there's and there's a lot of other things that I've noticed. I've tried to do some like for instance some simple stuff like uh, thousand monkeys writing Shakespeare, which is a common phrase, but it doesn't know what to do from there. On the same token, Midjourney doesn't know what to do either. So this is there. Uh, once you get into the obscure, then all of a sudden uh, this becomes something that you need to really figure out your keywords to make it work inside of here and of course that's just takes time and, and a little bit more thinking and, and algorithms and all that other good stuff
1: next question next one comes from Hershey Trivedi in daytona beach i have one more question from the friend also do you know how to make reels for instagram
0: I don't know if you have anybody here that really uses Instagram that much, so I think that's the problem. Oh, you use it, so so Chris knows everything about making reels. No, um, I didn't say everything, but I
7: do use Instagram. <laughs> okay, well that's so cute. Uh, um, so inter- reels are vertical, and they have to be a minute long.
0: There we go. Uh, yeah, um, or no, no more than a minute long. Long, right? That's the that's the deal. Correct. Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, Jeffrey.
5: So Meta has now changed it so you can you go into their meta dashboard i show you mine but uh you know of course that's my back end uh that'll also link up facebook so your instagram reels and your facebook reels become you can uh, you can post to both of them but it's basically business.facebook.com right now and then uh and then what you attach the the instagram all your instagram channels if you've got more than one and then be able to uh upload reels from your desktop uh, for mobile. It's a lot easier to do, but uh, they're really trying to make this back-end, this uh, business portal, uh, something that you want to do. And I believe with Instagram, you have to change it to a business account. There's three different types of Instagram accounts: one for the consumer, one for the business, and one for the creator. And uh, that's going to determine how you uh, how you uh, upload your reels.
0: I, I I used to feel bad because I don't I don't use Instagram very much. I have an account. I just don't use it very much. I think the last time I posted was a couple years ago, you know. And um uh, when I travel I post oftentimes and then I don't do it any, any other time. And um I felt bad until I talked to my kids. And my kids were like, I, yeah, no one uses Instagram anymore." <laughs> like from their perspective, from their little world, they were like in their world it's
7: Snap and messages.
0: Like like those are the two the two things that they that that all their friends are using is Snap and messages. Um anyway, go ahead, uh, Chris.
7: It's super interesting how the various uh, social media things get co-opted by uh, generations or groups of people. You know, uh, Facebook obviously started as, you know, the Facebook, the college Facebook. Mm-hmm. And now it's just, you know, as overrun soon as, by... As it. soon
0: as the parents get into it, it it's, it's something. The reason Snap, I think, is so popular is because none of us understand it. Like, we always... <laughs> there's so many of us that are like, I don't understand Snap. So, in so my the kids family... Lo- live kids live in that little world.
7: In my family, from the grandparents down to the grandchildren, everybody uses Snap. Right, they, they, and it drives me nuts because they take their photos on Snapchat and they evaporate in twenty four hours, and right. it's like dude, you are literally living in the digital dark ages here. It drives it drives me crazy because you will never have these things to share later. Well, it's not that good. Well, maybe it could be good. Maybe yeah. it's going to be a good memory later. Uh, I still think that Instagram, the Instagram discovery section or the the little. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it is one of the most fascinating things I've ever come across. We've talked about it before, and I think it could be used that that sort, that type of algorithm could be used in a business instance or a conference situation. Uh, Mm -hmm. It just needs to be developed. Next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Marcello Moyano in New Jersey. What are the best wireless earbuds today looking for noise canceling, but also the best sound quality overall?
0: I would say it depends. <laughs> it depends on what you're looking for, uh, what you're trying to get out of them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I use the open com, uh, the open coms uh, um, from shocks when I wanna talk because the boom mic eliminates a lot more than everything else. Um, my general, put stuff in my ears is the is the AirPods. I take, the, I use the AirPod um, Maxes when I'm flying and I use the Bose, um, the, not the Bose, the Ultimate Ears, fits when i really want to listen to some music while i'm doing something uh jeffrey real quick
5: so the the one thing that a lot of people don't realize is if you get like the lens or anything like that they think you can actually pull them really out and actually get a cable that'll connect up via wireless like right now i have in my ear i'm playing with this thing it's called the iffy GoPod, they don't give you the earbuds so this is the basin earbuds but you can put your linsils in or whatever and just clip it in and then that becomes a wireless earbud right there so you can have the the amount of drivers the five six seven eight drivers that come in these small buds and get the quality sound that you need in a wireless situation
0: go ahead Harsheed, real
6: quick you may look at Sony, and uh, as far as you said, uh, the, the, the the brand and the quality, Sennheiser makes the TW3s or whatever they call it through your wireless threes. Uh, they'll give you the best sound quality.
1: Uh, next question. This one's interesting. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn says, morning, everybody. What's the audio panel's thoughts on the Nopia, n o p i a
0: I uh, Go ahead, Courtney. No,
4: <laughs> this is what it looks like. Uh, it's an interface. And I have to say it's gonna be a steep learning curve when you look at that and nothing's marked, nothing's graduated, nothing's pointed out. It's this interface for software that is chordal. It's based on chords. Um, so it's interesting and it always sound it, it tends to make music uh, very easy because it it keeps you into the structured uh, uh, even tempered uh, scales and chord based uh, combos with that keyboard that you you know, small piano-like keyboard, and then you have other controls for making tonal selectors, et cetera, and thirds, uh, basically following music theory. Uh, And it interfaces with a a workstation, the software that runs on your computer that records the output of it. So interesting, uh,
0: but a very large learning curve and with nothing marked on the surface, it's confusing to me. I have that problem with um, a lot of instruments is they don't have enough markings on the instruments, you know, like the saxophone, the keyboard. No markings no markings on the keys like <laughs> go ahead, jeffrey
5: yeah this is what happens when wes anderson makes a music device um so it's it's actually really nice it's uh it, it, yeah there's a learning curve to it but uh it's for people that really don't want to get into the deep music theory and uh, build out some simple chords and some lo-fi beats or or anything else for their youtube channels so once you once you get a hang of it 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 will be fun and of course it connects up to the computer so i'm assuming there's also going to be an interface that'll help you with all the buttons and dials Our next question
1: peter moore auckland new zealand any chance of getting michael fainer jr obs expert on after hours and he's got a link
0: uh maybe maybe even on second hour so we'll have to take a look see if we can get him in next question
1: paul wallace discussed the difference between stable diffusion and doll e and he's got links there Go ahead, John.
3: Not sure exactly what you want to know here, Paul. Stable Diffusion is an open source project primarily funded by stability.ai. And, and now Dolly 2 is part of OpenAI. They're both diffused models for text to, to image.
0: I think it's just the, probably the difference in quality. I, you know, it's funny. I feel like Dolly just took over and then disappeared. I mean, I don't ever hear anyone talk about Dolly now. I mean, we talk about ChatGPT, but I feel like Dolly just didn't, it didn't keep up with Mid Journey you know, I think that that was the big issue. So I think that, and John, you can tell me what you think right now, but I feel like it's really between Firefly and MidJourney at the moment. You know, Firefly gives you the control, but not quite the same, in my opinion, not the, quite the same quality as MidJourney. And MidJourney doesn't have, la- I think if MidJourney started adding layers with transparency, it would, you know, or, you know, depth maps and, you know, other things like that, I think that it would, um, <laughs> it would take over. You know, like it's, it's just, it, and so I think that that I, I'm expecting to see in version six, I bet you they'll start adding alpha channels. You know, like that's my, that's my guess because that's, that feels like that they've got hands down really well. I did a rendering cause it was, a, there was a rendering for, uh, I don't know if it's going to be used or not for Mac break. And I had a lot of hands and it only did six fingers once. <laughs> But otherwise, I was like, I looked at all these hands, and they're really well formed. And I was like, somebody spent a lot of time training that thing on hands. Like, the one thing we're going to get out of 5.0, hands. Uh, next question.
1: Next one is Sean Johnson in New York. I have a client who prefers to use their screen capture card and or camera via the screen share function in Zoom to force a higher resolution of their image to all participants. We tested their method, and it looks okay. Anyone done this? Any concerns? I right, go ahead, Courtney
4: uh frame rate is the only really concern it it uh when you i think zoom is still doing this is when you screen share it, it prioritizes resolution over a frame rate so it'll start to drop frames or go to a lower frame rate if you have a lot of busy stuff going on in your frame um so you know you may lose some frames it may drop to a lower frame rate uh, if you're going to use that screen share instead of just processing it as video
0: Yeah, and and if you and if they if they are making it have it optimized for video, which is another button, then it's pretty much the same as what you had before. (laughs) So, so you're not really buying anything uh, with that with that setting. Um,
1: Next question, Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, how do capacitors affect the quality of a speaker's sound? And he's got a link there. Good morning.
2: Well, um, hmm. it's been a while since I've done circuit design. Um, uh, Capacitors are used in various parts of the audio equipment, they're used in power supplies, and a capacitor and a power supply stores energy. So uh, reserve energy in particular, so that after peaks, um, there's uh, energy to be drawn on in audio circuits. um, That's what capacitors do is they they store energy. So a larger capacitor will store more energy. But there are also different kinds of capacitors that um, that affect how they work, um, how fast they store energy, how long they store energy for uh, the frequency that uh, um, <clears throat> for transients that they will respond to. Um, maybe somebody else has a better explanation.
0: Go, ahead, Jeffrey, real quick.
5: Yeah, it's just like with this microphone right here. I have the uh, Shure MV7 that's hooked up via, <clears throat> excuse me, via USB. USB has a capacitor on the other end, so it can, can give you consistent power. If you're just uh, if you're not have if you don't have the capacitor in in the pattern there, then all of a sudden you get inconsistent power, and then you can create cutouts. I have a QSC touch mix, and that's the biggest problem with the touch mixes is the capacitors start to go out, and the uh, and the channels start to fade or they get audio a buzz or anything like that in there and uh, the older uh, touch mixes a lot of people have been switching them out with a, with actually a little bit better capacitor and they've improved the sound of their uh, QSC touch mix because of that constant power flow to the uh, microphone good Courtney
4: yeah capacitors are used for uh, uh, signal coupling or decoupling of DC so it'll pass a capacitor will pass an AC signal but it won't pass a DC signal uh, and it's used uh, in that respect also for filtration. And so um, uh, networks that are designed to uh, um, you know, uh, send all the bass to the bass driver and uh, filter out the high frequencies so that the high frequency sounds don't hit that bass driver. They're used in crossover networks inside speakers. Ah, uh, to do uh, to separate the frequencies to the individual drivers. So they're filtration devices and they're coupling devices, and they prevent DC from being passed over to a speaker that's designed to, to get AC only. That's the DC decoupling feature of it. So it's used in a number of ways. So it depends on how you're using them as to how, how the quality is going to be affected. Next question.
1: Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. Uh, The Sennheiser EWD series can get you a wireless handheld lav and receiver for around one thousand U.S. dollars. The Shure SLXD comes in around the same price. At that level, does it really matter which one you choose?
0: Yeah, I think it's more of a. I will say. That at this point it's more of a choice between what brand you use the most or what brand you trust at that price. I don't think that it really um, the the things that start to set themselves apart are usually at the higher end of those markets. Um, a lot of us uh, use a lot of sh- Sure axioms <laughs> so so the uh, so we tend to be you know once you start using Sure, you tend to lean into it um, for those types of systems. But the Sennheiser stuff is very good, and especially at a thousand dollars, I don't think that they they necess- the, that range doesn't really distinguish itself. Um, one way or the other it's reasonably solid slightly better than the entry level and not quite as good as the upper level all right we are jumping into our uh second hour and we're going to be talking about acoustical measurement with michael curtis hi michael can you hear us okay
8: i can it's
0: good to have you here um and can you tell us a little bit about your background
8: yeah so i uh grew up a musician who got dragged into other, other side of the booth uh in college but uh I worked in studio world even before that. So I've had a kind of wandering career. Then I had a record of mine butchered that I produced in college by a mastering engineer. I thought I could learn this, so I jumped into mastering. And uh, yeah, so that was a blast, set up a mastering shop. And I still got that going, but then I decided my uh, spiritual gifting is learning all the super nerdy subsets of all the culture. So within recording, no one grows up wanting to be a mastering engineer, so I did that. And then when I got more into live sound, where I live now in Rogers, Arkansas. Uh, there's a lot of corporate gigs. So I was doing that. And then uh, I realized I wasn't very good at system deployment. So about four or five years ago, I was like, let me dive into that niche there, the really nerdy one and, and go there. And that's where I find myself today, uh, where I, I still mix a lot of shows. I design systems. And then I also teach others how to get great results out of their sound systems on the YouTube channel. So I'm part master engineer, part uh, A1, part system engineer, and part audio educator.
0: That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, for, for folks who are just getting into this, what acoustic measurement is?
8: Yes. Uh, so basically, we're able to use our ears, right? When we listen to anything, we have subjective experiences. We have the actual loudness, the timbre, the, the, the musical content. We you know not all of us are into Cardi B. Some people like Dwight Yoakam, like that is all part of the sound we're taken up of. But with measurement, we're just getting raw data. And we're able to use a system uh, to interpret data. And that's usually a computer running a software like Smart or Rita or Open Sound Meter that can display this data. But we have to get data in. So we put a microphone that has a very flat or neutral response that can hopefully capture whatever's going on in our measurement environment really well, put it into our computer, and we can do things with that signal and parse out some data. And ultimately, you can just help us make better decisions with what we're trying to accomplish. And that's maybe fine tuning the crossover network that you just mentioned in a speaker design that could be tuning a sound system that could be putting together a nine dot two or nine dot. 4.2 4.2 Atmos system, whatever, like you, all these, these are just tools available to you to give you in addition to your ears and your experience, a way to have data and also settle conversations a little bit easier. Uh, Cause if you ask any two <laughs> audio engineers for their opinion, you're going to get three. So. Right.
0: No, it's good. You know, in, and audio, you know, acoustic measurement is something that I got into when I was in my, very early age, my, my uh my great uncle was a was really into it and i, cool. I got the sound the, the typical sound reinforcement bible that we you know uh-huh. the, that a lot of us have when i was like 12. <laughs>
8: so, i love it man i didn't understand
0: I didn't... anything i was looking at at the time sure. but but i very much got very into just wanting to know the numbers you know like i i yep. just you know I, I have a i don't trust my ears i don't trust my eyes i look Ooh. at scopes for everything yep. um and so can you tell us a little bit about okay first of all what microphone when you say a flat response what microphone yes. are you talking about
8: Uh, That's a great question. So, uh, there's a lot of them out there. Any of them from $69 all the way to $800. Um, I think the sweet spot is about a $300 microphone for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, 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 but basically
0: what is that $300 microphone?
8: So that uh, so I the ones I have right now are the Isimcon EMX 7150s. There's also mm-hmm. the Audix TM1, um, and so I what what you're paying for with that versus a $69 microphone is very low unit to unit variance. Because again, if you're buying a microphone that's going to give you data, okay. what you want is that data to be presented to you in an uncolored fashion. So basically, we're we're not a um, you know, a news journalist out there who's spinning a story. Like we want it to be just the facts, please. Right. So that's right. that microphone. So it is also an omnidirectional microphone, meaning it's listening in spherically in all directions. Actually, I have a video on my channel where I took this microphone right here in my room. And I, pl- I turned it 180 degrees opposite the speaker, just to test like, well, how much, mm-hmm. um, is it really that omnidirectional? Like the, the XLR cables literally point at the speaker and the other, and all I got was like a three DB reject redu- reduction above 12 K. Right. So, which is cool. So like, it's really listening omnidirectional. So we want to be omnidirectional. We usually want them low sensitivity because if we are uh, a system engineer for, uh, let's see, an EDM festival and we got 20 hertz just barreling down these VLFC enclosures, like we need a lot of headroom. So low sensitivity, uh, high durability. We can trust the data, low unit variance, and then high EMI rejection. That's what the, the, the 7150 in particular versus some others, even though that price range has a little better and low THD. So what's uh, THD total harmonic distortion. So that, that's actually something where the earthworks has the, the uh, isomcom beat um, is a little bit better THD performance. But in my mm-hmm. opinion, again, it's a fantastic microphone. Again, you could also get the, the Behringer ECM 8,000, which is 69, $89, something like that. It's still got good results. It's not going to color the data a lot versus this 300, $320 microphone. Right. It's just held together with hot glue. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I even tell people like, it's good, like get your first microphone, get something that is cheap. The one that just lives in your backpack and you're on a dusty outdoor gig and don't want to bring out your nice stuff, like bring that one with you just to have. And then in your Pelican, have your nicer set of microphones in there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when, when you're out measuring, what are you measuring for? What, what, um, what are you looking for? Like when, when you start to measure yes. and you're looking at those, what are you looking for? Like, what is the, what is the mm. goal of, of what you're trying to find in the, in a given room or a given location?
8: I love it. So my usual context, again, because we can measure anything, right? Uh, We can get impulse responses for acoustical measurement, all this different stuff. My usual context is I'm tuning a live sound system. So whether it's two K-12s on sticks or a 16-box Panther array, um, I am putting out a microphone to get data. And anytime you're putting a microphone in a specific position, you're answering a question. You're asking, what does it sound like right here? So not only does our measurement equipment have to be calibrated correctly to set up in an intuitive way, we also have to, in addition, just like you said, like what are you measuring? So in my typical tuning process, it's the same no matter the size of system. I'm starting with the system that has the that, uh, most amount of custody. So biggest coverage area. So if we're at like your normal arena concert, that's going to be your big main hangs, usually a left and a right hang. So I'm going to be pushing, putting microphones directly on axis with that array. And I'm going to use, I usually start with four, an ABCD approach. This is Bob McCarthy's classic uh, approach. And I basically think about how can I subdivide the audience into these four logical zones? So then I'm basically saying, okay, in the 200 section, way up in the, the, the seats up high, the 100 and maybe a couple on the floor. And basically again asking myself like how can i look at the frequency response aka the magnitude and phase data what's happening and see if it's equal because my job is to make sure no matter what seat you're sitting in I, it needs to be a good experience or e- at least have a good shot of whatever the mix engineer is hearing to be translated across the entire space so if someone's in the nosebleeds then they're like we shouldn't have paid for these tickets and they're in the front row and the front fills are just non-existent so you're just hearing the drum kit that's not good so you have to take it into account the entire space and so with this data uh, i have to make sure all the squiggly lines i see on the graph look the same (laughs) across any of my mic positions throughout the audience
0: and and um and so and and are you using when you're when you're what what audio are you using when you measure it? So you're pushing something out of those speakers that you have to measure.
8: Yes, no, great question. So um, in, in any audio analyzer software, you can have a signal generator and the most common source signal you're going to be using is pink noise. Now, what what's the cool- difference
0: between pink noise and white
8: noise? Pink noise. So pink noise uh, has a different weighting to it. It's basically a, a low pass filter that has it fall off faster than white. So pink noise, all right, let's start with white noise. White noise is all frequencies at the same level. Mm-hmm. So if we know with audio and our logarithmic hearing, or the way logarithmic, um, I guess the frequency scale. So if we look at A440, like our normal tuning note, if I wanted to go up an octave, i double that. So it'd be 880, and then we double that again. So we are doubling. So if we have a doubling every time we go up an octave, that sounds like the same space to our ears, but that's twice the jump in actual frequencies. So if we have equal energy Per frequency, that means we have twice the energy per octave. And so we have this shift upwards to where it sounds like to our ears a lot of high frequencies. But with pink noise, it basically levels that out. So we basically have equal energy per octave. So pink noise to our ears so is going to sound really bright and thin. And pink noise sounds flat, whatever that word means, to our ears in this equal energy. So with our tools, though... Um, you know, I, I use smart, I could use any test signal I want the, if I'm doing a dual channel measurement, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, it, it it doesn't really care as long as the source is signal is, is consistent. And you know, it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't really care, but why pink noise? Well, I can't test my subwoofers with a flute solo. So we play a test signal that is able to occupy the full frequency range that we're concerned with. So that's usually 20 Hertz all the way up to 20,000 Hertz
0: no absolutely and and for for those of us who work in events sometimes that pink noise can stay on for a long time as people figure this out <laughs> so, yes
8: yeah, so
0: you get used to it you know like it's, it's uh you know like the, that and and the and the thousand hertz you know uh tone oh is, yeah video uh, yeah, yeah so. you just, you just kind of hear hear that for you know sometimes it feels like hours uh, of, of it running and, and 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 how do you approach that so when you're you're mm-hmm. you are um you're you're going into a, a facility it gets uh-huh. all set up is that pretty much the first thing that you d- you go out and do is is um, start to measure where you're at
8: so it depends how much I'm involved with pre-production the actual show my mixing it more often than not I'm also mixing the gig so just system engineering is just a facet of what I'm doing inside of it more and more as the bigger shows I'm getting on this being parted out but uh, majority is I'm involved with it so I before I start you know the, what People think of the classic thing of tuning the system or toning it. As I need to verify the system, and if I had no time at all, I need to verify that yes, is polarity consistent across all drivers? Um, Is the all the high frequency drivers working? Because sometimes you you start to measure a rig, and you're like, I got no 8k in the back. You know, like because those boxes are off, <laughs> they're blown, <laughs> all these other things. So I before I get to the, the the fun part of getting to play with my processor and align things, you have to kind of do this uh, kind of eat your broccoli stuff. And you don't always have time for that. Uh, Sometimes the rental company didn't do their due diligence. So, but the only way you can really know for sure that all your tools are going to add up to your expected result is to verify that. So that'd be step one. If you have the time, if you don't have the time, you can have to blend those two together as you go through and measure each zone. Am I looking at the data? Can I trust what I'm seeing? It isn't consistent across the other equal sources that that I have. So, um, but I always have, Again, it's the same approach no matter size of system. Start with the system that covers the most amount of people. Line up on axis. Go front to back. See what that looks like. And then you can start look at horizontal aiming. Is that covering? Then work to the fill systems. So that... Um, it's it's pretty logical. I guess and again, it's, it's not my idea, but I just like this way of I'm not having to worry about changing it every time uh, I can kind of adapt this approach to any size system I'm on. Yeah, and then how are you using those measurements?
0: Yes. <laughs> so you get those. You you, you get those measurements. Got and it. And what are you adjusting to make that work?
8: Absolutely. So I uh, within my software, I have a target curve, and so are it, you able to
0: show Smart? I don't know if you have. Yeah, yeah, I got, got it. A screen share. Yeah, that'd be great. Let me go. It's an incredible piece of software.
8: It really is. And so I gotta find my share screen, share right here. Go to transfer function view. Have a nice oh, little folder it. here on the left. Okay, what y'all got it?
1: Yeah. yeah yes. We got it.
8: Awesome. So on this bottom, I have my magnitude graph, which to to most uh, would feel like this is uh, very similar to like an EQ graph. You can kind of make that jump here. So this white line is the tonality of a music-based system I like to get to. So if this would be just a straight line of like no change, I like um, a bump in the low end on these corporate gigs um, from basically starting at like 300 and it's about a 7 dB lift. And then at 1K, there's a little bit of a drop off and then a low pass about 17K. So uh, again, excuse me, this is if I'm on like on a corporate gig, if I'm on like mm-hmm. full bigger arena stuff, I was using this outside recently. So I changed my trace to white or black with the other skin. Here we go. Now we're back. And this has a, a bigger low end bump. This doesn't work for everybody. This is just the trace that I like to use to get out of my system. So when I'm measuring... Um, even if it's again a point source on a stick with a single 18 sub i'm looking at a measurement so let's go to a recent show here uh i just finished this commencement gig so this was the mains right no eq so here's a bunch of messy lines (laughs) and this is the measurement of the sound system before i did anything so this is my i always go in the same order green orange pink yellow let me just clear out the coherence line for a little bit. So this is a little bit easier to read. I'm going to apply some smoothing just for those who might be new to just make this a little little bit easier. So this was the response of the line array front to back from basically the first row and then a hundred feet back to the second. So if this first microphone was yellow front row, about 25 feet, 25 feet, another 25 feet, I can see like, okay, I'm now comparing each of these equal input sources to where like I need to make an EQ adjustment to get to my curve. Right. And so the thing is, though, on this particular show, I just released a video on it only had one processing channel for all 12 boxes. Ouch. So I only had to make I had to make one EQ decision for that entire hang for everybody. So that means I had to get it right in the design first. So as much as I love smart, I love measurement. It's kind of like the people don't want to learn how to record. They just want to mix. It's like you have to kind of eat your broccoli (laughs) and and figure out that stuff first.
0: Well, and it comes together, right? The the fact that you're doing a lot of measurement means that when you design it, you know what you're what's going to happen because you saw it actually happen a hundred times or a thousand times before.
8: Exactly, exactly. And so that's uh, so design and they're intertwined, right? Right. Um. So, as we can see in the back. The green trace, we lost some top end way up here at 16K because it's having, it's having to throw a long way. But in the front row, it's it's a little bit zippy. And the, the most egregious thing is it's this 4 dB peak right there at 5K in the front row. So what can we do about this to make the, the best experience front to back? So I um, hide all these traces, put back my target, and I'll go back here, mains right, host EQ. So this is my what I did after the fact. And it brought it much more in line with my target, at least here in the low end. So that EQ move, I, I basically did a low, very wide, like 0.4, I think, Q at like 350 and just brought all that down into alignment. Right. So it's when you bring that EQ in and out, it feels like a really big change because it is. But those boxes just had a lot of low mid buildup um uh, and then it also and,
0: and you're you when you're doing this you're watching yeah. it you're watching it live and you're making yes. EQ adjustments so you're sitting there you have your target line and you're pulling on these on that EQ and looking at what it's doing with the pink noise running through the system so when you hear exactly. if you're at an event and you see all the you hear those pink noise that's what the engineer's doing in the background is is moving this this little this this around right
8: yes yes exactly and so you think some people are like well that's it you just it's smarts it's like a video game you just twist the knob to make it fall onto the line. It's like, well, there's all these other decisions surrounding how and why, and where are you putting the microphone and what systems aligning with this and the other. So yes, some of it is like, yes, I want my system at this target tonality and I can at least start there and then listen. Um, and I, I go there, but then there's like, okay, how do we integrate the subwoofers into this? How do we choose the crossover right. frequency? Um, what level are they at? Cause my subs are on the ground, but my mains are in the air. So level front to back is going to be very different for the front row versus the back versus the rate of change from the mains all the way to the front. So where do I set the subwoofer level? In the middle, in the front row, in the back? So there's, there's this kind of decision making matrix that you, this data merely informs the decision you make. It's not the end all be all.
0: That's great. Um, and then, and, and is this the primary, so this is the, this is the first thing you're doing there. What are other things that you might be measuring during, you know, as you get as you get ready for a show?
8: Yeah. So I can, I'm, so this particular gig, I, um, I'm responsible for the floor PA, but then it's also a 19,000 seat bowl and within a preexisting, uh, setup. So I'm having to measure the existing system and making sure it's target tonality is is matching what I want on the floor. And so I'm having to measure that. Um, if I want to get really fancy, I can actually take an impulse response of the room and I can load that to a convolver. Um and then have it as something that I can use for later reference if I'm mixing in that room. I can run a mix through it and actually hear later, like what does it feel like to, to mix there?
0: So and, and when you do the impulse, is that a is that a real impulse or is that a, is that a sweep?
8: So you can do either in smart. Um you can uh, there's certain pros and cons. One one can get a little bit quicker, some you can do averaging on faster, some can window out certain data. Um, I would say acousticians are usually using a sweep more. And then if you're just needing to getting a quick uh, capture of the room, pink noise will get you there faster. Um, and so
0: when you say, well, you say pink noise will get you there faster, but, but that impulse is something that is, is that a truly an impu- a momentary impulse? Or is that something that you're just running? Uh, you're running the pink noise through over time and then using that as the way to model the room?
8: Yes, just like we can get a live IR in smart, it's basically doing like a capture of that live IR in real time and then for an impulse. Yeah, so it's basically taking, you still set the window size for how long you want that to be uh, and then it can capture it at whatever FFT size is appropriate for, for your application.
0: Now, are measurements part of things like ringing out the room? Well, we often talk talk about that. Is that something that where you use smart to find where those frequencies are?
8: Sure. So you can use. So what we've looked at so far, and I'll share my screen again, um, is a dual channel measurement. These have all been comparative. I'm comparing um, mm. in each of these through a transfer function the original pink noise signal, which would be coming in basically flat, and then these are showing me what's the difference between the raw pink noise and right. then the actual signal that's coming in. So right. I can go over to spectrum view and have my microphone right here next to me. And this is hearing my voice. Um, right. And so this is a helpful tool if you want to start ringing something out. So I got a RTA view over a spectrograph, mm-hmm. and so if I were a microphone feeding back, and you know, I'm just going to simulate that, like, if I push my microphone, I could see that 250 line right there. That was that was coming out. So that just makes an easy way to see what's what frequencies are there. That's
0: great. And then what do you use when you're looking? You're talking about polarity in the in the past. What yeah. What what do you use to identify? Whether something's out of polarity.
8: Sure. Stand by. Let me add a little transfer function engine here. So we're gonna do the mic. And make a new reference channel. Great. So this is a We're looking at a live measurement of the speaker that's right here next to me. And I can show you real quick. It's this right here. Just a speaker. it's about a foot away in front of my little FOSTEX. I've had this 10 years. And we want to sync this up because we want our measurement and a reference signal to be synced up to get some good data. We'll just hit the D key and i will do that. I can see this impulse response. Um, you can see how it's going down then up. I can look at polarity by seeing which directions it's going first. So um, I know there's like a whole lot to unpack here. We got the phase graph, we got polarity, we got all this other stuff, but I think it might, might maybe a better thing to show you is actually this mystery processor. So I had a little demo where we're going to look at I have some electronic equipment on the test bench. And we can actually run some signal through it and push some buttons and see what's changing. We can start to see things, data about it before we actually know what it is. Right. So got this guy, insert the delay. You can see here at the top, that impulse response, um, I'm going to turn off my speaker here. I'm not sure if it's coming through Zoom or not. Oh, no, we don't hear it. Okay, okay. The noise suppression is doing great. You also can't hear my three children in the background. So that's, that's good news. <laughs> so, um, so on my processor or this thing I have in my test bench, here's, you can see positive polarity. It's linear. We don't see much change in the magnitude graph, but if I hit here, see how it flipped over? Right. That would then show me negative going polarity first. So that's the first place I can look at something is my impulse response right here. And that's basically showing um, amplitude over time But it's going through something, uh, it's taking the the raw waveform like we're used to seeing that drawn and then running a Fourier transform on it and then flipping Mm -hmm. it over to this. Um, So we use math from this dead French guy in all of our audio analyzers to to show that to us. We can also see in the phase graph, if I put back to where it was, this line is showing everything's arriving on time. It's flat here at zero degrees. So phase is cyclical, right? And if I hit my polarity switch, we see it pop over. To 180 degrees off but i didn't see a change in magnitude this doesn't change the level of the signal just the relative timing
0: no absolutely um did you have anything else in that in that deck you wanted to, to show us
8: sure it, it it um so that this is my little test setup mm-hmm. right here and basically we, we've already talked a lot about it in the intro but i'll just keep going from here but th- this is it um if, if if anything i want folks today who, who maybe might be scared of the squiggly lines or like well, I just use my ears, man. Just like this tool isn't meant to replace your ears. It's to help give you confidence and data when you're doubting your ears right. or maybe they're challenged. And so I just want to encourage that this, this is a learnable tool. It's a learnable skill set and really a lot of fun. Uh, and just getting to throw things on the test bench is, is pretty cool. So uh, again, that, that Fourier transform is Jean-Baptiste Joseph Fourier. So all that says is all complex waves are composed of a combination of simple sine waves varying amplitudes and frequencies and i got this from the the good folks at rational acoustics with their permission just wanted to get get that out there they uh, i highly recommend their smart operator fundamentals online class not only teaches you smart but the all the fundamentals of measurement here It's on youtube for free it's awesome Uh, but anyway so basically all this software is doing is taking the signal in and breaking it apart into its constituent sine waves so just like we saw earlier in spectrum view you're seeing my voice pop around. So it's a complex waveform of all these harmonics on top of each other and just breaking it apart to show me level over frequency. That's all that's happening. And so we're just basically tearing it and putting it in this domain so where I can see it. Um, So then I think about like, okay, that was a single channel measurement. What we did at the top of the show is a dual channel measurement. So with the single channel one, we're asking, well, what is this thing? So all it can tell me is like, here's the signal that's coming in, but you can see way down here at you know, below 125 Hertz, I'm not reproducing that, but my air conditioning and the road noise outside is doing that. So a single channel measurement can't tell me what it's comprised of other than we just see it moving in accordance with my voice. Um, it's it's just saying, hey, here here's the signal. But the beauty of a dual channel measurement is you can say like, well, what happened to it in our device and our system? How are they different? And then also, how are they the same? So with this, um, our single channel, we look at the waveform and then it brings it over to amplitude versus frequency with the FFT. We can actually go backwards with the inverse Fourier transform, which is fun. So with dual channel, we can look at amplitude versus time. And we also looked at earlier, uh, a little bit later, magnitude and phase versus frequency. So now we can get more granular about exactly what changed between my pink noise going into my system, then arriving at my microphone. So why dual channel? So with a reference for our measurement, we can tell the arrival time of the direct signal. So we can say the propagation. So this might be helpful for aligning front fills versus your mains. I can tell the timing offset. We can also extrapolate signal from noise. So everyone knows that uh, pink noise is the maiden call of the vacuum cleaner when you're on site. <laughs> So like I feel like every half the time I try to go tune a system, especially on political gigs, like I start tuning and then like they start, yeah. you know, and of course, and I can't get anything useful out of my
0: system. Well, they think they think it's there's a lot of noise. No one's going to notice if we start vacuuming now.
8: Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so it, I even had a, a tech the other day on site. Uh, I was at it was a stadium thing, and he was helping me run microphones, and he put one way up in the stands, and I just see this like. Not constant set level coming in. Hop on radio. I'm like, hey, are you talking right now? Like he's just like sitting there talking to his friend right <laughs> exactly. next to the microphone. I'm exactly. like, yeah. <laughs> so you yeah, can't worry play. about that. Don't worry about that microphone. Yeah. So anyway, um, and it also help you tell direct from reflected energy. So we all. Um, I haven't done a show that's not within a space, whether it is outside, you have the floor, you have other noise, you can have reflections. So we can all spot those things and learn what they look like and make decisions based off having a dual channel measurement. So we have to sync them up. And that's what I did earlier is so we need to bring them in alignment with each other. And what that looks like is we have the two waveforms. We can't compare things that are in time. So if I have this red box and we have two different chunks of the same waveform, but out of sync, our reference should go boop moves it over. And now it's referring to the same point, And now we have accurate data. So all that being said, this is the setup we have today. Um, and we can start to run these measurements on that mystery processor. Uh, so if you don't mind, we, we did the polarity one. Oh, I just do a couple other changes on the processor and just start to look at this data a little bit for it. And then we can jump yeah. to other questions. That sound good? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
8: Wonderful. So again, this is our single channel view, and we saw our three inputs, my mic input, my mystery processor input, and then my loop input. And the loop input is serving as our reference signal. So this is basically the pink noise coming out of my interface and right back in. And that's what we're comparing what's happening on the other two channels to it. So we go back here, I'm gonna bring my, actually I'm gonna leave my polarity inverted, which you'll see in a second. So I'm gonna bring in another separate processor in this chain, this measurement loop, and we'll see what happens to it a polarity flip back over. So just by engaging this processor, uh, that's only real change, but I also have a knob on here that's changing level. So on this processor, it's just called volume. And so we can see like, well, how much volume? I'm gonna turn this knob all the way up. I have no idea how far it actually can turn it up. And we can see in the bottom here, I have nine dB of gain on that knob. It's unmarked. It's a guitar pedal. I'll give you a clue. Um, But if I put it back at noon, is that unity? uh close so you know i didn't really know until i actually put this on the test bench to see what's happened we're seeing a little bit of a change in our phase graph nothing too crazy just that the phase graph basically shows you the timing of all frequencies laid out um so if it's flat it's on time if it's downward slope it's behind And if it's upward slope it's ahead so equalizers have this own weird thing of phase shift. You can actually have it where it looks like the out, the outputs before the input. We're not going to get into that crazy stuff today. But uh, let's run through two more processes. So this uh, guitar pedal also has an EQ on it. It's a tilt EQ, but I don't really, it just has like tilt up, tilt down. I don't know the maximum gain amount. Here's, let's find the corner frequency. So I'm moving this and I can see like, okay, my center tilt point is right above 1K. And that's the full and now I can bring it up. And I'm like, okay, now I know that maximum gain range. But it also has a switch to bring it to a different point. Let me switch that. And now I see it move down. So now it's about 200 hertz. Now I can bring that up. And lastly, at the very end of the chain, I will bypass this guy, bring the polarity out. I have a, a low-cut filter. It says on here it's a high-pass filter. But it says it's at 80 hertz, but it doesn't tell me the filter slope. I don't know if it's Butterworth, Linquist-Riley, second order, 12th order. Let's see. Looks like a pretty gentle slope to me. So this looks to me like a first order Butterworth filter. Not a lot of phase shift, not a lot of cut. So just by putting a measurement signal through these pieces of gear and just seeing what happens, I can learn a whole lot of stuff that's either unclear in documentation and just practice reading this data faster. So to give it away, this is what we're measuring. My base pedal board. Right. So the, the Thumpinator isn't in line. That's basically a glorified high pass filter, but we were using the Tilt EQ on the Diamond base Comp. I was using the volume knob right here on the J48. Um, we're flipping polarity here, inverting polarity, using the low cut. And lastly, this minus 15 d- dB pad. Is it actually minus 15? Let me bring this out. Bring us uh, right back down to Unity. Or we're just above. We're 2 dB over when we hit that. And yeah, we're at minus 13 or so. So yeah, this is accurate. So anyway, it's just a fun way to look at your gear, at least for me.
0: No, I, I, I find that it's much, much easier to understand when I'm measuring, when I'm starting to measure things, whether it's through scopes or through meters. It's much easier to understand what the gear is actually doing, you know, mm-hmm. when you're when you're doing that. Like I, you know, we, we learn a lot in video. Like I learned how gain and lift and gamma, you know, all those mm-hmm. things, you know, by looking at the scopes, you know, like yes. and, and oh, it's scaling from the top. Oh, it's scaling from the bottom. Oh, it's yes, you yes. Know, it's, it's grab, you know, like now I understand what those what those things look like. Go ahead, Marty. You have a question.
2: Yeah. Hi. So this is really interesting because there are questions that come up uh, very often is we have an audio chain. We have a microphone. We have an audio interface. We have a computer. We have software. Yeah. And and how are each of these different um, components or links in the audio chain affecting the audio? Um, mm-hmm. Is you know where can I find where the distortion is or yes. where a phase difference is? And and so you're showing uh, some very helpful uh, ways to not just look at. Um, how to measure loudspeakers and systems in a room, but how we can actually look at our electronic signal chain and see what changes there are and what's impacting and what piece of equipment might work better or sound better than another piece
8: of equipment. Absolutely.
2: And when we talk about speaker systems, um, so Mm -hmm. you've mentioned stadium uh, systems, which could be uh, a line array, something like, Something like that, where mm-hmm. there's a series of boxes hung in a vertical array. Oh, mm-hmm. And um, it, it's interesting to note that not all of these speakers may have the same signal in them. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the curvature, the bottom speaker is pointed down towards the first row, mm-hmm. and you may want to have different kind of sound, different characteristics, different frequency response, different level than the speakers at the top of the uh, array, which are pointed at the back of the room, maybe up even up in the balcony, throwing a lot farther. And so your four different microphones set in different places in the arena are measuring the different outputs from these different speakers. Exactly, exactly.
0: So let's go ahead and jump to the questions. We've got a lot of questions st- stacking up. Um, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go ahead and jump there to the go. first question.
1: We do have a ton. The first one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What's the best method of measuring speech intelligibility in conference rooms or presentation spaces? Thanks.
8: Yeah. So there's this uh, speech transmission quality index ST, or uh, STI. Uh, there's also ALCONS. Um, I'll, I'll be brutally honest and say I really don't end up Using that a lot, uh, there like there's like a, I guess like a fancy way to get like really specific data from like an acoustical standpoint, um, but I have a feeling if you slide that across the table to a client and like look, we achieved sixty three percent Alcons, they're going to be like, I still can't hear in the back, and so <laughs> I would say this is still an important thing to get to and have some qualitative data, but. I well, here I guess I'm not going to quite answer your question, but I would say like, well, how can you ensure that you can hear across the conference room? And I would say, well, so principles are, if it's echoey, we need to get the source closer to the listener. So we can improve the signal to noise ratio by moving speakers closer to people. We can get less energy off the walls and off the, uh, off the uh, reflections. So fulcrum acoustic makes a passive cardioid main box. Less 10 dB, less low end off the back of the box. It's bouncing around in the room. So choosing a speaker that's going to do something like that. Um, so I wish I had a better answer for you as far as that specific process with STI. <laughs> uh, but if you can research more on that. But getting speakers closer to people, reducing the amount of uh, noise in the me- in the measurement will be good.
0: Have you ever used uh, these very large arrays? I-, I I walked into a room one time that had a hundred speakers in it, literally hanging down. Um, yes. so that it was pretty quiet for everyone, but even it was for a press pool, so it was the idea was they didn't want a lot of mics going back into it. But have you used any of those to kind of even that out?
8: I, I haven't, I, probably mm-hmm. in, in that multiplicative of like that many speakers. Yeah. I've used like distributed point sources in arenas where it's like normal, but not that mm-hmm. many, I mean, it's a cool concept. You even hear like the, the piano players at church that have that little tiny Fostex, like sitting yeah. on a stand right next to them, same idea. Yeah. Um, and so it definitely works. Next question. Next one comes from
1: George Witherman Uh Venice, he says, what methods can be used to locate a microphone in a small isolation booth to minimize room mode pressure zone pickup? Typical dimensions, and I think he's talking about a voice booth for voiceover orders, one by 1.5 by 2.2 meters.
8: Got it. So, I would put a speaker in there uh, that you have, you know, just this little main, at basically what would be head height for your person who's speaking. And then put a reference microphone at the uh, the distance, just like a distance called, you know, what would be optimal for voiceover, so maybe six inches, one foot, um, and just take a measurement there and see if you can beforehand equalize the speaker to be flat, flat into so um, maybe take that outside, outside of the actual room itself, put do a ground plane measurement, equalize it to be flat, put it in the room, put that measurement microphone, take that measurement, and then you'll see the change due to the room. So we usually can't change the height of people unless you have them sit down. So our Z axis is going to be probably fixed within, you know, five feet to six and a half feet, depending if you're having NBA all stars record your voiceovers. Um, But then you could then what other axes do you have? You have your left to right. Um and forward and back. And so just experiment, maybe make some tape marks on the ground with like a stand and like, okay, move it three inches this way, three inches this way, three inches this way, and just take a bunch of measurements and whichever comes out the most neutral is what I would go with. Um, and you can see where those room modes are. So you can take an impulse response and load that out, load it in there and see a waterfall graph, uh, maybe in roomy key wizard. Uh, that's where uh, you can also do that in smart um, but I would say if I just had to be like real pragmatic, let's just look at some data in smart, take a bunch of measurements. That's how I'll, I'll go about it.
1: Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What is the best way to use glass in a conference space with the least amount of sound reflections? Thanks.
8: Mm. So it's going to have a different absorption coefficient. It's actually not that different from um, drywall. And so, it, glass isn't the, the, the uh, so the angle of incidence Uh, I guess I'm not quite sure like is this like in architecture is this in how you can have it basically glass is going to be reflective um, and people usually want to keep the view so we don't want to cover it up. Uh, but it's gonna, just like you have like a, you know, that we've all heard over 2020, that zoom conference room sound of just like, wow, just that, that boxy thing, like glass is going to do a similar thing. So if you're able to position things, I would say like, well, how can I keep as much energy off the reflective glass? If I'm building a space, how can you make sure the angle of incidences aren't just, you know, reflecting things back right down into microphones or into my listing zones? Um, there are, I think, some technologies out there that actually can have glass that has diffusion in it, in the pattern, but you can still see out of it. I think that's really expensive and probably fairly esoteric to employ, but um, it's one of those things, it's it's just hard to beat physics, and it's, it's, it's a hard reflective surface that's going to bounce stuff back. So <laughs> actually, next week, I have one in a museum that's entirely glass on this, and uh, it's going to be a fun one. Hey, I Michael, if it. I could ask a question. I, yeah, I, go and, for it.
1: In my recording uh, booth for voiceover at one point, we had angled glass to try to eliminate that. Does canting the glass at different angles have an effect?
8: Absolutely. And so I would say a a cube or a shoebox, uh, not don't do a cube, a shoebox with certain ratios in mind is a good thing to have. Um, people think, well, I don't have parallel surfaces. Well, that's actually really easy to measure and really easy to treat in an acoustic environment. Um and so you can do certain things to change the angles of the room. Again, I'm not a professional acoustician, but the, these basics I know. Uh, but again, it's the angle of incidence, the total reflection path, and at what point is it coming back into the microphone versus the original signal is going to determine the amount of comb filtering. So angling things, just like if you're recording an orchestra, don't use metal music stands get wire music stands so the sound can go through the paper as much as possible and not just reflect back up into the microphones, right? And so just reducing the amount of close reflections. Um, and again, your strongest reflections and strongest colorations are the ones that are going to be closest to the source and also angling back into the microphone. So getting things farther away from the source and making the angle of incidence to have a longer path is where you want to go. Good morning.
2: Yeah, this is an interesting way of asking this question. How do you use glass... To and, and improve sound, usually it's, I have a glass surface, how do I put sound in it? Um, but Michael is absolutely right. It's all about reflections and realizing that you can have two or three or four reflections, you know, uh, that sound can take that path before it reaches the microphone. And yep. so if you if you have a loudspeaker or a person speaking and there's a reflection off of a piece of glass, that second point of reflection, which could be behind you, if you put absorption material on that, you then yeah. kill the reflection before it comes back to the microphone.
4: Yeah, go yes. ahead, Cordy. Yeah, I think the best use of glass is for containing the re- liquid refreshment refreshments for the conference members. But uh, I was going to ask, <laughs> uh, Michael, if there is a rule of thumb for eliminating standing waves, which is standing waves are generated when you have two parallel reflective surfaces um in your sound field and you have to if you angle one of them off it can help eliminate the standing wave do you know the the amount of uh uh canting or or off axis that you have to do to eliminate standing waves is there any rule for that
8: Hmm. i I, from an actual geometry standpoint of like optimal angles i'm I'm not really aware of that but i think the most common approach someone might have is throw up some sound panels right because that's just going to absorb everything so i can speak to that the biggest mistake most people make when they're throwing up sound damping is it's, it's too thin. Um, it's usually like two inches of Owens Corning, which is great. It'll get rid of the slap, like the actual slap back, but it's only really affecting uh, or has an absorption coefficient above 80%, uh, basically like 500, 600 hertz and up. And so what, are the,
4: you, I was to say, what are the sound panels that you're using behind you for uh, absorbing reflection? Is that what they're using
8: for? yeah so those are gik acoustics traps and um i have them there uh these are 10 inches deep with a four inch air gap and six inches of insulation um or uh, absorptive material it's it's rock soul safe and sound um and so basically you can actually double your efficacy by putting an air gap equal to the absorption thickness up to six inches at that specific density so that's that's one thing even if you have two inches thick panels, just get a French cleat or some way to make them a little bit off and you can double it just by putting a two inch panel with a two inch air gap, four and four, six and six, again, up to six and six, but not a lot of people like eating up a, a cubic foot around their entire room as well. So it, there's some trade-off there.
0: The next question.
1: George Widoms up next from Venice, California. Again, is there any value at all in doing traditional acoustic treatments in a typical prefab voiceover booth or do the small dimensions break the math models?
8: Hmm. I mean, anything's better than nothing. I'll put it that way. Like I, I've never been in a bathroom that I like the sound of, especially not like a, and so it's, it's, it's that small room basically multiplies the problems of those reflections. Again, going back to our earlier principle, a small room means the reflection path um, is very short to the original signal. So that's why we're going to have a lot of interaction. So two sources interact most when they're, Closest in signal. So that's why going back to when we we're uh, for aligning speaker zones, if I'm aligning my front fills to my mains, basically the speakers down front and the lip of the stage to the mains, I'm time aligning them when they're closest in level, because that's when someone's going to hear them the most. So going back to our room acoustic analogy, there isn't a specific point in which the math just breaks it's just it's just gonna be worse and worse the smaller you get depending on the dimensions that you have so if you like this is all i got i have to make it work then put as much absorption in there as humanly possible uh, to make it happen um and absorb that but the thing is okay if it's the human voice most people are going to get below 100 hertz so you don't have to worry about having a super deep panel to get down to 40 like i do in my room so that may mean like okay i can do like a three inch and deep panel with three inch air gap behind it or maybe four and four and still have efficacy down in that range. Next question.
1: Next one comes with some Mickey Makichur in Manila in the Philippines. Why mm-hmm. have a system target that is not flat? That would mean that the same mix on a different system may sound thin or boomy. Why not
8: make the mix sound as intended from the get-go? Uh, that's a great question. So. In adi- doing a lot of corporate stuff, my mix. In addition, to going to the main PA is going a thousand other places. A press pool, the video roll record, the stream, the royalty free one, and so we need to make sure our mix, in and of itself, before it leaves the desk and goes to an acoustic environment, sounds good in and of itself. So that's why I'm always metering before it's going to the system. I like Isotope's tonal balance control. Plugin just to kind of give me like a general shape that I can follow, uh, whether I'm mixing dialogue or music. So you're thinking like, okay, now it's going to pass into my system and come out. As you saw, there's a 15 dB rise of 63 hertz versus 1k in my target curve. That's a lot, but the best answer for like why that target, I think it sounds good. That's really it. It's a it is so just and when I hand systems to other engineers that use a system, they're not asking me for a lot of changes in a live environment. Um, If we look at the A weighting minus or C weighting minus A weighting of live music versus um, recorded music, that difference is about six, maybe eight dB. And so we're having to take an account for that C minus A, C taking the full frequency spectrum, A weighting taking basically 100 hertz and above. Uh, into account with live music so we usually want at least a six db boost but most music oriented gigs folks like a really nice full low end um and then i have that slight drop off from 1k on up so it doesn't it takes a little bit of the edge off so it's a warm system without being too covered um and i still feel like at all like most spls it still translates um so yeah so make sure your mix sounds great before it goes anywhere so, meter it digitally or a loop out analog in your interface, and then dial, uh, use your controls across your processor, your matrices, whatever, to shape those zones to your desired tonality.
0: So, in many ways, you're quantitizing your taste. Yes. <laughs> next question.
8: Yes. Andy Kofendorfer in from
1: VR Florida. Can you please recommend some lower-cost audio quality measurement tools? Thanks.
8: Absolutely. And I got a whole YouTube video on this, and it basically provides uh, like a, three tiers of like, if if you're just starting, uh, if you want to level up a little bit, and then like basically what I have now. So I would say, let's start, you need a measurement microphone, you need software, and you need an audio interface. Um, I don't like the by multiple generations. So I would start, if you can swing it with a four channel interface, so you're not having to go with like a two and then upgrade to four later. So I have the, right here on the table, the uh, Audient Evo 8. Four channels has a digital loopback. So I actually use that as my reference source and I can still get four microphones in it. It's $199. Like, it's really affordable. And so um, if you want to go even more affordable, uh, the two-channel version of that, the Audio Evo 4, is 129 last I checked. Um, and it's two channels. It still has a digital loopback, so you can still get two microphones in it, which is great.
1: Next question. Next question comes to us from Mickey Mekichor again in the Philippines. How important is it to optimize signal-to-noise in the measurement from increasing the level of the reference signal in the room to using quiet and accurate preamps and audio interfaces? Dolby says no to scarlets for measurement, for example.
8: Oh, yeah. So um, I debunked this one on the channel as well. I, I maxed out the preamp on the Evo 8. Um and it has 55 dB of gain available and it ran a transfer function to compare it in 10 dB increments, the noise floor, and the coherence is still at 99%, meaning the noise from the preamp in and of itself is negligible. Um, Dolby... I guess maybe they have specific tests with the Scarlet. I used to use the Scarlet before the Evo, and I would have those preamps dimed, and my coherence never dropped because I used it was a different gain level. Um, Again, I'm not trying to say anything bad about their engineers. There may be some units, maybe the first or second generation Scarlets versus the third, maybe didn't have as good as specs. But all that being said, when people say, oh, there's noise in the preamp, they're basically monitoring a source upstream of that or downstream I always get those mixed up upstream of that that already has noise that's just merely getting louder it's not the preamp that's noisy it's just amplifying the noise that was already there so that's that point um about the measurement interface when it comes to signal to noise ratio in the room um, you need to be at least 10 db above the noise floor so first thing i do is i pull up a spectrum measurement and that gets you 90 percent coherence not including reverb um is, is if you were 10 db above the noise floor and so i'll pull up spectrum view and I'll put my microphone at its gain value. And I'll set it in the room. And I'll just look at the noise, the resting noise. And then I'll put up my generator and I'll just push it up into where it's sitting at least 10 dB above that at my desired frequency range. Again, in some arenas, like the ACs running at 60 hertz. It's just like, wah, and it's like impossible to get it over without killing people. And so at that point, I'll usually tune the mains, band limit it, to hundred Hertz and above, just get it above that. And then I can just band limit the test signal down to subs. That way I'm not having to blast it and get it above that noise floor. So at least 10 dB, 20 dB is amazing. You can get, uh, uh, I think up to like 98% coherence at 20 dB of the noise floor. So don't go more than 20 dB above the noise floor is what I'm saying. (laughs) Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Robert Soji in Los Angeles. When the sound quality of a given space is different at different locations, what are a few methods to solve this type of problem?
8: So, so is this a, uh, help, help me intuit this, but is this like different venues have different tonal characteristics? I think it's,
0: I think what he means is different locations in the room. So how do you tune that, you know, if Got you have it. different, yeah, different quality in different areas based on absorption, reflection, et cetera.
8: I love it. Okay. Yes. So we have to, to clearly divide what's within our control and what's out of our control. So what is out of our control are room modes, I'm not getting a jackhammer and, and moving walls around. Right. Um, and so. Room modes are, uh, you know, depending on the room size and Schroeder frequency and all this crazy stuff. But basically, this is going to be most common in the low end. You know, basically 200 hertz and below, we're going to have these peaks and valleys, um, depending on what's going on. Uh, I guess the room dimensions, um, with the way we interact with each other. So we can't control that. So if I see in one microphone position a big bump at 63 hertz, another one, another dip, I'm not trying to like, well, what do I do? Do I cue it out or whatever? Like, that's just a anomaly in the room. So I usually leave sub-200 hertz, sub-150 hertz alone unless I'm seeing that in every mic position. And that's why it's important to take more than one measurement, again, if you have time, because you can start to compare different points. So look at your data. If you're seeing wild swings in the low end, that's probably because bad room acoustics. What you do have control over is the top end. So that's usually, am I pointing a speaker Within its you know coverage angle, let's say I have a ninety by ninety degree speaker. I everyone in the audience needs to be within that you know pie of coverage. So I can not control where that speaker is, what level it's at, where it's pointed. Um, and so if some if there's wild swings in tonality, it's my fault if people are outside of the coverage. Sometimes they tell people sit in places where they didn't tell me they're supposed to do, and I have to throw up something real quick. But that's the beauty of prediction is you can in advance get a feel with the speakers that you have assigned to you on a show. How is this going to lay out? Again, things always change on site, but having these principles instilled in you and having a base level plan can know like, okay, this is going to be the weak point in designed. design. If they move the barricade up, people are close to the stage, I need to add these front fills. So basically being proactive, knowing that you really can't control a lot of low end unless it's consistent in all mic positions and focusing on placement and knowing your speaker specs. And then EQ is your last... um, line of defense so for instance with the line array if i usually have four zones i would ultimately have usually have four processing channels to even that out get it right in the design first i can use eq on the top end of those speakers they maybe have the the top boxes throw a little throw a little bit farther have a little top end and maybe shade down the top end in the bottom boxes to help provide a more even experience
0: do you are you ever modeling the rooms ahead of time, like yes. actually building the acoustic models of those rooms?
8: Well, not. Let's see. I'm doing it in Ease Focus Three, so not like the full acoustic mm-hmm. ease modeling. Basically, since I usually can v- control the acoustics of the room very little, it's usually very unless getting acoustical data measurement in advance is usually. Not helpful for the type of shows that I'm doing. If it's a yeah. long-term install and we know we're going to be adding sound, it, that's great. But most of my gigs on site, it's like, here's a portable system. We're doing the show in this room for one day and it's gone. So there's very little I can do on site to change the acoustics other than knowing, okay, it's really reflective. Let's get speakers closer to people. Oh, it's pretty controlled. I can, I can have a little bit more leeway. Uh, so that's usually the sphere of influence that I have. But I always do a model of at least the speaker coverage and levels and timing and all that stuff. Next question.
1: Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area, would like to hear your philosophy on the importance of phase before and after measuring and utilizing transfer
8: functions. So phase uh, phase and magnitude are both important, but magnitude wins. It settles the argument. I'll, I'll put it that way. So if you have two sources that are interacting, we have to worry about you know their relative level to each other. But let's say um, we have a decision to make about our mains, our front fills, and our subs, and then phase alignment between them. So phase, again, is the time arrival over frequency. So if we have, usually in a loudspeaker, high frequencies are gonna live first, and then low frequencies are late to the party, just like the bass player. Um, and so uh, we, so it's like this roll step. So what used to be everything arrived at like a hard transient, it's now being spread out over time, and basically, Knowing this about loudspeakers, we can do fancy things like FIR filters and other things to kind of make it flatter. But let's say we have a main speaker, front fill, and a sub. I want my mains and my subs to have equal phase response when they're equal in level. So we need to find out where they're equal in level and make sure they're lined up. Let's say I have a front fill and it's under spec And it's, it's like, I need to pull a lot out of this speaker. And what's an easy way to get more gas out of a speaker? Ask less of it by setting less frequencies to it. Well, I'm already getting a lot of low-mids off the main array. How about a high-pass filter on my front fill that's right next to my sub? It is very close to it when physically, but um, I need to ask you more of it. So instead of 100 hertz, which is like the normal crossover from this particular system subs to mains, let's move that up to 200, 250, since I'm already getting low-mids off the mains, and I need to get more out of that front fill. So now because of that filtering, my phase alignment between that front film, the sub is now whack, but I don't give a rip because I need the high frequency coverage in the front row. So phase is important when sound sources are equal and level. I want them to be overlapped when they're in coverage or when, uh, they're equal and level, but sometimes you can break that rule because level wins like the low mids on the mains are louder than that. You know, little dual six Frenchville could ever be. And all I care about from that specific box is the top end coverage and clarity. Next question. Next
1: one comes from Robert Soji again in Los Angeles. What are a couple of common mistakes when setting up a basic audio system for a live audience? Yep.
8: First is, uh, let's start like with a small system and maybe work our way up. So let's just do like two K 12 on sticks and two subs. Um, usually you you have speaker stands. I see most speakers are sitting at their lowest height. And that means if you have like a 60 foot deep room, 40 foot wide audience, that means the, the audience in the front is getting blasted and the audience back can't hear. It's usually not that bad, but one thing you can do to reduce what's called the range ratio, basically the the delta between the speaker to the front row and the speaker to the back row is by getting that speaker up in the air. It's just basic Pythagorean theorem, making the triangle a little bit taller, it makes that less of a discrepancy. So in smaller systems, get your speakers up. And if they have a little tilt, basically I want that high frequency driver pointed at the back row. So that's an easy win to have. So trim height can always get you a little bit more coverage. Um, it also gives you more time for the speaker's coverage to spread out since you're farther away. Um, like I can cover the entire moon with a one degree box if it's here on Earth, right? Because it's it has forever to go out, right? Uh, but then the thing I'm trading with that is more, uh, less signal to noise since it's farther away from the listener, it's bouncing around a little bit more. So you, you just get fluid with this Rubik's Cube of decisions of like, this is a really reflective room. Let's get it close. I'm okay with the discrepancy front to back because people in the back are just drinking and don't care and the people in the front want to be there. So you're just kind of taking that account. Um, I would say... A second thing is that uh, don't spend too much time on things that don't really matter for the end. So that being said, I'll see people who are, you know, turning the the labels on the front fills that they have sideways so that the, the, the logo is, is there and like the, the subs aren't even plugged in. Like just make sure in order of operations, like knowing get the system that's going in the air up First, make sure your system with the biggest coverage is working and tonality is there because again, we're always under the clock. So working like what is going to have the most impact the soonest and get that done first. And then don't, you know, spend forever like oh, I'm gonna, my KS 118s. I'm going with 80 hertz or 100 hertz today. I'm just not really sure that like just pick one and go. So move quickly. That's great. Next question.
1: Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. When tuning a room, how do you adjust for an empty room versus a room full of people? How do those measurements typically differ?
8: That's great. So with so humans are gonna suck up, I guess, absorb frequencies. <laughs> and so we're gonna have less noise. So it's gonna be a little bit more intelligible. And there's also been studies to show that low end propagates much differently through uh, a bunch of human bodies stand together so people are going to feel like, oh, it feels a little bit tighter. I'm hearing less bounce around the room. And I feel that the bass, it's usually not a huge measured difference, but it's usually a felt difference. Uh, and then also, if you're in a bigger room, uh, a lot of people in a room increases the humidity. Sound uh, has an easier time traveling through water vapor than it does through less uh Wet. I can't. I can't think of the best word, but less uh, humid air. Uh, and so, the upper seats—that's where the heat is going to rise. You actually get more top end. And so, when I'm tuning a room and it's a it's a bigger audience, I'm usually if I'm shading the top boxes in a line array, I'll intentionally leave them one or two b two dB down from where they need to be and let the humidity bring it up to my target. And I'll always walk it and check. But so, your humidity low end is going to feel different and things are going to feel tighter because more absorption.
0: One more question for this hour, where uh, we uh, we we didn't get to the bottom of the of the list, but we're gonna we're gonna get you one more. It was really sure. incredible hour. Yeah, go ahead. Thank go you. Ahead.
1: Next question. Ronnie Hossoy and in and Norway has our last one. We're using Smart with a DBX mm-hmm. mic for our Nexo rig in the usual mm-hmm. left right stack placement. How, How should I utilize the measurement setup during the live gig, and what to look for to improve the result?
8: That's a, a okay, great question. So during the live gig, uh, you can get a transfer function of like your console output versus the speakers. That's usually very clouded data, a lot of room, you're getting both speakers. I would say the the biggest thing is to use that spectrum view where you get these, uh, the spectrum or RTA over the spectrograph. So you're looking at have it slowly averaged and looking at the, the, the actual um, waiting and to see like, you know, it's gonna have a low end and slowly taper off another cool cheat code excuse me, is run the monitor output or the cue bus of your console into another input on SMART. And so you can see your microphone response. And then if you need to cue up a microphone or cue up your whole mix, you could punch that in and you can see those meters on your graph. And then you could just use the Z key to cycle between your microphone and your your graphs. Um, But that's how I'm usually using it. And then also for SPL. So you need a calibrator basically like a little silver little box you put on it and it plays a 1k test tone at 94 db or 100 db 110 sorry um and you adjust your mic preamp and it says like hey anything coming at this voltage at the preamp is 94 dba or db and then you can measure spl usually keep that with me at front of house if it's more stringent conditions maybe like a speed limit at a festival you can place a few of them around so it's monitoring spl looking at your spectrum inspector rta and spectrum graphs then also having an easy way to Send anything from my console into Smart, um, so I can look at that as well.
0: Michael, it's credible hour. Thank you so much <laughs> for your time. We just we just extracted massive amounts of information out of Great. your head. I hope you don't have a headache later. No, uh, absolutely sure. Was- it was amazing amazing thank you we, so much i think we're gonna have to try to get you to come back um, i think i
8: will this has been fun i little, enjoyed
0: a little q a it's really really uh, learned a lot uh, about about measurement so um definitely we're gonna try to get you to come back and and uh, join us again just fantastic hour uh, absolutely. so thank you so much for your time
8: you're very welcome uh I, I think i'm gonna get an after hours link i'm happy to hang out for a little while
0: yeah, yeah absolutely we'll jump in right after this okay. uh, uh, uh thanks to the panel for all the all, we can't do this without you for all the great uh, answers in the first hour and uh, thanks to the uh, pr- producers it was, a, it was a great day today a lot of questions for the first hour as we started the first hour, which just makes the whole thing run a lot smoother. So uh, definitely when we see a bunch of questions and of course a lot of great questions for the second hour as well. So, um, but definitely get those questions in early. It gives us time to look at them a little bit, work through them, think about them. So you can start uh, in the evening uh, Pacific Standard Time, I think after 4 p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time or midnight uh, um, Zulu or, or GMT, um, you can you can start those questions. And so go ahead and throw those in so that we can have a little time to think about them. Uh, we traveled 140,000 miles miles today answering these questions, two hundred and twenty six thousand kilometers. It would have been really hard to do in a single room, given how much cut how much we covered there. Um one point one four billion Bananas for scale. <laughs> so, so we, there's a lot of, a lot of bananas, a lot of potassium in, in today's show. Uh, also, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that does all the work. And we have a small uh, village that gets together. It's starting to become a. It's 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 like a city with the G, but not with the H yet. We're working on that. Um, and so, uh, so the um, so we're gonna. Uh, it's just an incredible team that comes together every day, all week, developing the back end organizing folks to, to, to come in, figuring out how we're going to do all of this stuff, and then actually the live team that puts it together. So thank you so much for your contribution. All right, we're going to go ahead and jump into After Hours. This is the part where we whisper. See, this is our own little test. It's got a, a high-pass filter on it. I don't want to okay. monitor this. Tune, Tune this, this room. room. <laughs> exactly. this is the whisper room so we haven't really tuned the whisper room so it could be all over the place you know it's, it's just
5: bouncing around but so it's all white noise yeah, Michael thank gonna, you for being here it was a
0: great hour I was going to say that my different I can always tell because white noise is whee, and, and big
8: noise is whee. you should just answer the questions <laughs> you, 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 you can answer them in one sentence I want to go back to where you sang 440 and see if that was actually accurate <laughs> It it wasn't. It was it was a C, not an A.
6: <laughs> All right.
8: There we go.